I started trading tapes a few years later. So when I was 12 years old, I started trading tapes and my friends, I, I was asking them to send me things and, and, you know, I would occasionally buy tapes, 10, $15 a pop. I did the HTML for John McAdam in exchange for tapes. And John had a very extensive collection. So I got a lot of stuff from him. Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling. Assuming you're listening to this podcast on the day it comes out, as you should. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, a podcast where we primarily discuss pro wrestling from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Today, we are going to continue our deep dive into the World Wrestling Federation of 40 years ago, February 1984. Before we get rolling on that, uh, I want to invite you to follow me on Twitter. Just put in the, the name John McAdam in the search engine and follow the guy with the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. Also, you want to join our Facebook group. It is not like other Facebook groups, and you will find that out quickly. It's a bunch of really cool, intelligent guys, and I appreciate all the the great feedback. Mark Roland, Mark Rock and Roland, put up a post uh, just congratulating everyone for being a good group, and it's well-deserved, so thank you for that. If you would like to donate to Stick to Wrestling, it is a free-to-listen-to commercial-free podcast, you can PayPal me at prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. I have a bunch of people to thank, and I will do that next week. Almost forgot, this Friday, meaning today, uh, February 8th, the outdated wrestling podcast is coming out, and both Steve Generelli and I are the guest, and we talk about the top 100 wrestlers of the decade of the 1970s. And this is an, a, not at all a knock to outdated. It's a great podcast uh, hosted by Bob Smith, formerly staff of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. But it's almost like another hour of Stick to Wrestling. It is the most the podcast most like Stick to Wrestling you'll ever hear. I mean, like this particular episode. So in case you haven't had enough of this extra large episode of Stick to Wrestling, I definitely recommend you listen to this podcast. It was a really good one. So here we go, WWF 1984. And we left off last week with um, a show that we're going to talk about, a historic show at the Boston Garden, February 11th, 1984. I was thinking I was one of maybe a handful of people still around who saw this show, but we are lucky enough for the first time to be joined by a guest on this show he was also at the Boston Garden on this historic night, Mr. Sheldon Goldberg. Sheldon, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. My pleasure, my friend. Good to hear your voice. Good to hear your voice, too. We were just talking on air. I have not spoken to Sheldon Goldberg since the uh, August 28th, I think, 2002, when we saw a really good Ring of Honor show in Wakefield, Massachusetts. Right, right. <laughs> All right, so we'll talk about the Boston Garden. Sheldon, when I went to the Garden in 84, uh, it, it was a tr little bit of a trip from Nashua, New Hampshire. It was like 40, 45 minutes. Then sometimes there was a lot of traffic to add to that. But my friends and I usually went early. Uh, we would either, you know... Uh, go to uh, was a Faneuil Hall. We would go, maybe get dinner at the North End. Maybe visit uh, Newbury Comics, which was a giant record store. And we got there on this date a little, you know, early. I want to say like four or five o'clock. And I noticed something very unusual. 
the Boston Garden ticket office was closed, and there were giant signs that said, wrestling sold out. Uh, did you catch any of this? I didn't. Is In fact, I'll tell you, I remember having not purchased the ticket in advance. I just walked up that night and bought a single ticket. Normally, I would call somebody. I had some connections back then. Normally, I would call somebody and have them get me some tickets. And I didn't use that connection. I just said, hey, I, I, you know, this is going to be a cool show. The title just changed, changed hands. You know, this is one I probably want to go check out. So just on the spur of the moment, I got on the, the subway and uh, went over to the garden and caught the show. I bought a single ticket up in, uh, not up in the balcony, but um, just below the balcony. I forget what they call that, the promenade. The loge. And there I was. Yeah, not the load, it's just above the load. Okay, that's right. I think the, they call the, that the promenade. I think you're right. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know what happened, but, I mean, I do remember it's at some point the, 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 it, the it was closed off, and then, you know, we went out, got something to eat, came back, and people were outside. They were like, you know, perfect strangers saying to us, do you have tickets to this show? Will you sell them? I'll give you a lot of money for them. And I was just like, no way. I want. I, I'm already here. I want to see my wrestling. And usually, you know, Sheldon, right. you're a wrestling historian. You know that a lot of people talk about how, you know, every week was a sellout at this place. And then you look at the numbers and it just wasn't. During the Backland era, the Boston Garden was either always sold out or just about near sold out. Did you go to a lot of shows like in the Backland era? I went to a number of them. I wouldn't say I went all the time, but I did go to a number of them. And, and yeah, they were always I – I don't want to say sold out, but they were heavily sold. Yeah. I mean, it was – you know, they, there might have been a scattering of, you know, seats like way in the back in the corner. But Boston Garden was a place for the WWF to print money. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, in fact, I, I'll tell you an interesting story. Sure. There was a guy that I, I, I had known during this period of time – um, by the name of Joe Perkins. I don't know if you know the, who that is. The name rings a bell. Have you ever heard that name before? Yes, definitely. Is he like a producer for WWF, like a director of the TV behind the scenes? He No, he was, sold the TVs in syndication. Okay. And he was a key figure in the national expansion because he, was, uh, he had um, originally met up with them uh, because of Vince McMahon Sr. He had worked for Sr. for many years, you know, doing the TV syndication. And then uh, when the change went over, when uh, when Jr. bought in or was getting ready to take over, he was a key figure in staying on and expanding the television syndication to be a national thing. So Joe Perkins was a friend of mine. He's somebody that I knew from, from the advertising industry because he owned an ad agency, and uh, he would, uh, I would see him at uh, luncheons that uh, they would have uh, every month. He was uh, part of a Benet Brith group that had for people in the advertising business, and I used to go to their luncheons, and he would talk about his dealings with Senior and talk about his dealings with Junior and how they were going to expand and uh, how they, not that they were unhappy with Backlund, but they were going to make a big move and all this and uh, uh, he was going to be along for the ride and he, he would very freely talk about uh, what was about to happen and uh, as I say I could have called him for tickets but I didn't on this occasion it was a, a show that I wanted to, to go out of my way to see 
That that is interesting that you would know someone like that. Here we are doing a podcast about what this guy was doing. <laughs> right. All right. Well, let me see. Boston Garden, February 11th, 1984. It says 14,500, which I believe the opener, I remember Eddie Gilbert versus Pete Darty, uh defeats Pete Darty. At the Boston Garden, the opening match usually went kind of slow. It was out there designed that, you know, okay, if you're running 10 minutes late, you, you can get to your seat. Sheldon, I remember this match being a particularly poor match. I, you know, something I, I really, that, that match is a blur to me. I was there on time. I, I didn't miss anything. I sat in my seat the whole time. I didn't get up to get popcorn or anything like that. I, I just sat there the whole time and was just enjoying it. Yeah. No, I'm not going to remember every last thing about every show I've seen at the Boston Garden. I've probably seen like 70 of them. and But I, I do remember that. This was a particularly slow match with, you know, headlocks and everything. So next up, Tony Gurria against local guy Fred Marzino. Then we've got Paul Orndorff versus defeating Chief J. Strongbow. Sheldon, were you a Strongbow fan, and how did you feel about... Chief J. Strongbow at this point in his career, I mean, clearly he's close to the end. Right. When I was a kid, I was a big Strongbow fan. And so was my dad. Oh, nice. I used to have to drag my dad kicking and screaming to the matches. But once he got there and Jay Strongbow came out, my dad was the loudest guy in the building. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, Strongbow, yeah. I've said this before, he's the guy who made me a wrestling fan, and it was just kind of see, kind of sad to see him like so washed up. But anyway... Hulk Hogan, a late substitute for Bob Backlund, who was going to get his rematch for the WWF Championship. I think it was either, I don't think it was the day of, I think it was the week before on the Saturday television, they announced that Hulk Hogan would be defending the championship instead of having Backlund in his place. And I can tell you, Sheldon, you know, I don't know what you remember, the place was absolutely crazy for this match, like nothing I had ever seen before in Boston. Oh, yeah, it was unbelievable. The atmosphere was just, oh, my God, tremendous. Yeah, it was a Texas death match. Uh, Hogan basically squashed the Sheik in eight minutes, much like the Madison Square Garden match. Uh, I mean, Hogan, and this is something that I found out recently, Sheldon. We really saw history because this was Hulk Hogan's first ever defense of the WWF championship. You had mentioned that to me off the air, and I didn't realize that. That was uh, I, I knew that was going to be an interesting show because it's usually, you know, in, in the old days of wrestling, when the title changed hands, the first time the champion would go around the horn, it was big business. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, I didn't want to miss uh, a show with a new champion. So No, same here. I mean, I, I went every month anyway, but I mean, Hogan, what I recently learned when I was researching for this episode was that Hogan, right after he won the championship at Madison Square Garden, uh, flew out, went to New Japan, wrestled a bunch of tag team matches and non-title matches, and this is his first match back from Japan. So we got to see the first ever title defense live and in color. Wow. All right. Uh, Next up, they were bringing this around the horn, as I say, Andre the Giant, Tony Atlas, and Rocky Johnson against Sergeant Slaughter, Mr. Fuji, and Tiger Chung Lee. Sergeant Slaughter was in the middle of his babyface turn, and he was having problems with Fuji and Chung Lee throughout this match. Mm, right, right, right. I remember when Tony Atlas got to the building, he came in through the audience. 
I don't remember that. Really? Yeah, he, 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 he got to the building, and he was just, like, walking through the crowd. On this night, I'm surprised I don't <laughs> remember. But, yeah, at the end, of Sergeant Slaughter, Andre the Giant, Tony Atlas, and Rocky Johnson were all friends, and we knew what was coming, the big feud against the Iron Sheik. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Brian Blair over Rene Goulet in what I'm sure was kind of a meaningless match, and then we have a midgets match, and then we see more history. Tito Santana defeats Don Morocco at 12.30 by catching Morocco with a sunslip flip uh, as the champion attempted to tackle. Sheldon, do you remember what happened before this match? Before the match? Yes. Mm, no. Okay, hey, hey, it's been thir- 38 years or something like a that? A long, long time, years, yeah, so. right. <laughs> I specifically remember they lit up the ringside area with television lights and television cameras showed up. Yes, they they had a, a couple. They had a guy with a handheld that came out. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like a truss or anything like that, but there was a guy that came out, um, like like you'd see them shooting the news. You know, yes. like they they do a, a story in the field. They yeah. And right. immediately, me and my friends and everyone around us became suspicious. Why all of a sudden? How are there TV lights outside the ring, which had never been done before? Right. And it it kind of, I don't want to say gave away, but it, it immediately it made us suspicious that, wait a minute, are we going to see a title change here in the Boston Garden that never happened? That's right. A, a title change on a house show is a rarity in, in the WWF territory anyway. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised that they wouldn't go ahead and tape the whole card. I know they hadn't started on Nesson quite yet, but... Uh, to have the Hogan match and some other good matches like the Slaughter beginning of his turn, it would have been kind of nice to have the whole card, uh, you know, filmed for future use. Yeah, they weren't thinking that far ahead back then. <laughs> that must be it. That that might have been it. But, you know, one thing I was thinking of, too, let's say they recorded the entire card. Well, I mean, the television lights are hot, but come on, it's Boston in February. Just open up, you know, the uh, the tunnels that they had. Number two, you're kind of <laughs> I mean, you're kind of violating kayfabe in a way. I mean, just by, you know, oh, the the last match is the only one we're going to record. Mm, mm. I remember that the crowd was just shocked, totally shocked. The title changed hands. Yeah, I was shocked that the title changed. I know I was. I was, definitely, because since I had started watching WWF in 1976, every single title change took place either at the championship wrestling tapings, where there's TV, Madison Square Garden, where there's TV, or Philadelphia Spectrum, where the cards were televised. Shelton, let me ask you this. I was not only shocked that the title changed hands in Boston, but I was shocked that Tito Santana won the championship, and he his feet grew to fill the shoes. He was a really good champion, but I didn't see him as a big enough star at that time. What were your thoughts? Oh, I thought he was going to be champion. I, I thought he was going to be a good champion. I, I had seen him in other territories and knew that he was a good talent and a good worker and, and a great babyface. And uh, I had a feeling that they were going to do something with him. In fact, I think Perkins had mentioned it. Oh, I know they loved Morocco. They they loved Morocco, but I also think Morocco won the title uh, January 1983. He'd had it for over a year. It was, and this is what they were doing. It was kind of, in my opinion, time to freshen him up a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. I have a question for both of you guys, since you've both been to so many shows at the Garden. 
did you do you recall any uh feeling of uh, this is like a definitely a different feeling than say that if you had seen the Bruno days or if you've seen the Backland days, did you really feel a sense of something different on this night? Children, you go first, please. That's an interesting question. Uh, as far as seeing something different, you mean the the feel of the whole? It's they still had the territory feel. Okay. You know, as far as the, the the matches and the way they were laid out and the way the card was laid out and so forth, um, that didn't change. You know, the the real changes would happen. You know, going forward from from Hogan taking the belt. How about how about the fans? Like the fans who were in attendance, was it still like kind of the fans that you guys were used to seeing, or was it kind of a new breed of fan in attendance? No, it was the fans that we were used to seeing. Okay, that that change happened maybe over the next year or so. Okay, uh, Sheldon answered that question exactly how I would have answered it. Um, the crowds were, you know, I mean, they, they were a typical WWF crowd that you had during the Backland era. And as 84 and 85 went on, you saw more and more families and kids at the shows. And, and Sheldon, you know, this is something unique, I, I, a unique perspective you can give for me. Tell me if you disagree with this. The Boston Garden on wrestling night could be kind of a dangerous place. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I remember when, when, when Mulligan got stabbed, yep. you know, my parents would let me go for a year. That, that that Mulligan story is crazy. That person dipped the knife he intended to stab Blackjack Mulligan with in, what, pig fat or something like that? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that. Uh, I, 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 I hope that guy did not get away. But I guess as time went on, starting with Hogan winning the belt, like I said, it was it was a lot more relaxed, a lot more family friendly. You kind of there there. I don't know how else to put it. There are a lot of dirt bags at the Boston Garden on wrestling night. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was a, during that that era when Morales was champion. You know, there's definitely a hyped up Latin crowd that lived or died by with Pedro. You know, there were a lot of rough characters that, that went to the garden to see wrestling. Uh, you know, in the Bruno days, earlier than earlier than that, Bruno brought out all the Italians. And, you know, I used to tell people that if you go to some people's houses in the North End, you'd see three pictures on the wall. Jesus Christ, the Pope, and Bruno San Martino. That is not an exaggeration. <laughs> yeah. No, and you know there. I remember one one night I went there. It was July '82, and we were in the middle of a heat wave. And we pull. And you remember what the old Boston Garden was like? It was it was just concrete, no air conditioning. It was it was it could be rough in the summer. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And we pull up, and the bank that had the time and temperature thing said it was 114 degrees. Now I know it really probably wasn't 114 degrees, but the sun had been beating on this old concrete building all day. It was an oven in there. And a lot of the guys who went to the Boston garden for wrestling, they were drunk coming in and they kept slurping down beers. The night went on and there were fights all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Luckily, we're we're getting out of that now. Right. Sheldon, I want to thank you for coming on. You were at the Garden that night. Uh, you can, you know, we were both there. We both got to see two big pieces of history. Not only Tito Santana winning the title, but Hulk Hogan defending for the first time. Thank you again. It's my pleasure. John, was that the last title change that took place before the pay-per-view era in the Garden? 
No, uh, Grandy Savage beat Tito Santana in 1986. Yes, yes, that was ne- that was Nesson though. Yep, Nesson came in in middle of 1985, and now we could have an occasional title change at, at the Boston Garden. Right, right. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. No, thank you. It was good talking to you. Likewise. I want to once again thank Sheldon Goldberg for sharing his brain that magical night at the Boston Garden. We're going to be talking about three big shows that happened over a nine-day period, and I'm lucky enough to be someone who got to see them all. I got to see the Boston Garden show live. I got to see the... We're going to be talking about a Philadelphia Spectrum show and a Madison Square Garden show, both of which I have seen on videotape and or DVD. And Steve, I think you mentioned you've seen the Philly show as well. Yeah, just uh, actually earlier today, I got to see it. Uh, For some reason, the... uh uh msg show wasn't on youtube i couldn't find that one but uh yeah the, the spectrum one turned out to be a surprisingly good show i was really p- pleased and enjoyed watching that one all right before we get to those shows let me give you an idea of what was going around around the horn both york pennsylvania and hazelton pennsylvania had middle school and high school gym shows on the 16th and the 17th of february with andre the giant tony atlas and rocky johnson defeating the samoans and sergeant slaughter on both occasions i will beat this expression to the ground wayne gretzky didn't come to york pennsylvania cal ripkin jr did not come to hazelton pennsylvania but on the Giant and Sergeant Slaughter did what part of the magic of wrestling, Steve? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm, and then these are probably, I'm assuming, they're probably like fundraiser shows. So they probably helped the uh, uh, high school get some money for the new new school football uniforms or band uniforms or something like that. Exactly. Um, the the WWF was still in the business of selling shows at this point, and those shows were usually successful. If the cops come knocking on your door asking for you know to buy wrestling tickets, you're probably going to do it. That's right. Because a, a lot of the times it was like to raise money for the police department or the police athletic league. Now we're going to championship wrestling on February the 18th, 1984. It opens up with Ivan Putski defeating someone named Ron Butler, who I do not remember. But before the match, and this is the first match on the show, Joe McHugh acknowledges the passing of David Von Erich and calls for everyone to stand in silence for a 10-bell salute. The WWF would not be recognizing anything going on outside of their universe not long after this, but it's interesting that they did this specifically for one of the Von Erichs. Yeah, it d- definitely. And I-, I can remember being a fan at this time and, and watching this, and uh, I think I had known about David's passing. I think it had made the uh, you know, UPI or one of the wire services at the time and uh, felt you know felt terrible that this young uh, wrestling superstar who I, I don't think I'd ever seen him wrestle other than the magazines uh, had passed away. But I thought it was very cool that uh, the WWF did acknowledge him, and, and even though he never really wrestled for them. But uh, this does, does lead to a question that I had for you, John. I think we touched on this in one of the earlier episodes. I think that uh, when Vince was targeting a lot of the talent across the country to be potential future WWF superstars, I think he had the Von Erichs definitely on that list uh, to play a role, some, some sort of a role. So I wanted to ask you, what role do you think, had he been able to get 
um, three of the Von Erichs or even just two of them, what, what role do you think they would have played and how do you think it would have played out? Well, here's the thing. The Von Erich boys were not going to quit wrestling for their dad in order to wrestle for Vince McMahon. And why would they? I mean, they were making plenty of money in Texas. They don't, you know, they, their travel is far more limited than if they came up here. Um, but Fritz and Vince never, I mean, to this point, I think Fritz was the only one that Vince was going out of his way not to piss off. He wanted to use the Von Erichs in some capacity. If they had been able to come to an agreement, I think either A, they would have been all on like a, a mega show. Like, not you know, mega show in February 84 was like Madison Square Garden, Boston Garden, uh, Philadelphia Spectrum, etc., you know, having them make spe- special appearances there, maybe even one at a time, like they once, I mean, all three of them wrestled Madison Square Garden once in 1980. So maybe leaving two of them in Texas while one of them toured with the WWF is my best guess. I know that they came to a talent exchange in 1986 when Ricky Steamboat wrestled at the uh, Cotton Bowl show, and they were going to exchange talent there. And this is when World Class was desperate for talent. I mean, the the main event of this show was Kevin Von Erich and Black Bart. <laughs> They're trying to run a stadium on this. So WWF lets him use Ricky Steamboat. And then what I heard a long time ago was when it was time for World Class to return the favor. Now, this is at a point where they, they could definitely use Vince's help. Uh, Fritz tells Vince that he wants $25,000 per appearance for Kevin Von Erich, and that was the end of any talent exchange. So you got Steamboat at the Cotton Bowl show, and that's it. Well, and I think uh, I think you made a very good point there. I think that they were in a real comfortable position in Dallas working for their dad, and, and they had you know their obvious issues and I don't know if they would have been reliable enough to do a, a national tour for the WWF, but uh, putting all those intangibles aside, uh, at least for, as an armchair booker, I would like to think that they could have been maybe uh, taking the spot, say, that the Briscoes ended up getting in the fall of uh, 84, that kind of a tag team, a babyface uh, spot, uh, say, uh, Carrie and uh, Kevin uh, could have done that. Uh, gotten a big push because they were two young guys, good-looking guys that I think Vince could have pushed to the moon. But uh, when you figure in all those intangibles, like, you know, would they have been able to make dates? Would they have been able to stay drug-free? And all those other intangibles, uh, I'm sure it would have just given Vince a lot more headaches that he didn't really need. No, I mean, I'm sure if he could used, if he could have used the Von Erichs, he if he had the opportunity to use them, I mean, he he would have been crazy not to. Uh, in in a way, I think Fritz was. I mean, I say this hindsight being 2020, but Fritz definitely should have played ball with Vince McMahon any way he possibly could. Oh yeah, it, it would have been, it would have only really, <laughs> for the most part, helped uh, Fritz out and prolonged his. Uh, tenure over there and uh and you're funny your comments about the the 86 thing uh, so i think one of the other talents that vince sent over there he sent to george wells who became master g in world class and uh vince didn't really uh, other than sending steamboat for that one big show he didn't really help him too much no, not at all. I mean, again, he couldn't come to an agreement with Fritz. I mean, and, and I'm sure, you know, if, if you're 
Vince McMahon, or if you're Fritz von Erich, you're riding on top of the world in February 1984. You don't think you're going to need anything from anyone. And uh, two years later, like that was just all wrong. You know, world class to become kind of a minor league promotion. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of sad that I think Fritz, uh, you know, compared to most of the other promoters, seems like he was very isolated in Texas and didn't really, I don't think he really kept his ear to the pulse of the wrestling world, unlike a Bill Watts who knew everything that was going on at Titan Sports. So it's it's kind of funny to think about it, but uh, but I just wanted to bring that up with you, and it's an interesting conversation. No, it's you know it. it I mean, it, we're we're not looking at the expansion in a vacuum. You know, when world class is a big, you know, a big, still a big deal. They're on in Boston at the same time the WWF was. And I once asked Jimmy Garvin, I'm like, you know, why did Fritz not come to Boston when they were you know red hot in 1983? They, I I know they could have sold out the Boston Garden. And Jimmy just kind of shrugged and was like, Fritz was happy in his own backyard. And that was it. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, compared to the other promoters, I think he was really just so content in his little area. And, and the idea of expansion, uh, other than maybe a small territory in Israel, I don't think he had any interest in going anywhere else. Uh, now, we'll, we'll get back on the WWF subject, but uh, I remember Chris Von Erich going on TV and saying, the Von Erichs are popular in Israel. How does that add up? I thought that was really funny. <laughs> All right. Paul Orndorff over Rudy Diamond. Rudy Diamond was this uh, very skinny African-American gentleman who was a, a jobber for on TV for the WWF, and he was from Boston, so we all liked him. Wasn't he a uh, barefoot wrestler? Yes, he was. Well, he was a, a he wrestled barefoot. Was he, you know this just jumped into my head? It was Rudy Diamond, the guy who was wrestling Paul Orndorff on TV. I don't. It definitely wasn't on this day, but he took a, a shirt from someone in the crowd that said Paula on it, and you got to have a lot of nerve to do that to Paul Orndorff. And Paul Orndorff taught him a lesson. <laughs> well. I, I remember, I think Rudy Diamond was wrestling someone, it may have been Morocco, and uh, Albano was just all over this poor young guy and in, in yelling and saying, look at his feet, his feet are white, his feet are white. It was, it was ridiculous. Yeah, you know, one can't exactly count on the 1984 version of Captain Lou Albano to have any subtlety whatsoever. He was a nut. Yeah, he he was a great part of the show, but uh, definitely not PC. Uh, not uh, he wouldn't fly in twenty twenty one. And to think, not to spoil it, because we all know what's going to happen. But to think, we are about ten months away from Captain Lou Albano turning babyface. Steve, a a once unthinkable thought. Yeah, yeah. I, I never in watching all those years. He he was probably the most hated performer if you know from a kayfabe perspective uh but uh, everything is changing and that's why this uh national expansion is such a pivotal time in the company history yeah it gets crazier and crazier uh the next match is rocky johnson tony atlas and sd jones versus renee goulet butcher vershawn and goldie rogers uh johnson and atlas are the tag team champions uh sd jones gets a win on tv 
Yeah. It's, <laughs> well, not a singles win, but a win is a win, you know, and it definitely uh, it's good to see him come up on the uh, uh, positive side for a change. And, and you know, Vince would occasionally throw him a bone and, and give him a little something to uh, keep him uh, as a known important part of the roster, at least as far as the TV guys go. Oh, totally. Um, I don't know. Speaking of the national expansion, the WWF would soon be coming out with action figures. And SD Jones at one point was the third sellest, highest selling action figure, of course, because he is the only person of color in the group. And if, if the black kids wanted a person, uh, a black wrestler, they, they had SD Jones. That was it. No, that, that's, that's uh, very interesting. And I didn't know that. And, uh, I know he actually came out one of the with a, I think uh, I don't know how many sets LJN released. I'm assuming maybe seven or eight sets. I think his was probably the fifth or sixth set, and I think he he came out with uh, when Bruno had his and Miss Elizabeth and some of the other kind of miscellaneous guys. But uh, I thought it was cool that he got one because he had been there for such a long time, and he was definitely a very popular guy. He was, and if I were working for Vince McMahon, if I were advising him, I would be banging on the table saying, if everyone's buying his doll, why aren't we pushing him? Right, exactly. Uh, Anyway, Greg Valentine defeats uh, Frankie Williams. We've talked about this. Uh, Once again, it was such a shock to see Greg Valentine out there with Captain Lou Albano. I was so used to seeing him with the Grand Wizard, and I know they got along, but like Albano was the opposite of the Grand Wizard. Yeah, it, but but that was good though because uh, you know, as you had said on a prior show, uh, Valentine came back really fairly quickly after being away for just maybe a year or year and a half, and uh, giving Albano kind of freshened him up a little bit, gave him a new look. So it's kind of interesting. I think it did freshen him up up a little bit. I mean, right now the only managers in the WWF are Fred Blassie and Lou Albano. I personally thought that Fred Blassie might have been a better fit for Valentine, and they didn't put bad guys out out there on their own. So you're right, it did freshen it up. Mm-hmm. All right, then we have the mass superstar against Rocco Verona, and then Tony Tony Garia and Brian Blair against Bill Dixon and Charlie Fulton. I don't know what to say. I, I like Tony Gurria enough. Just if you're on TV teaming with Tony Gurria, they do not have big plans for you. Yeah. Well, Tony Tony Gurria, um, you know, in his day was was very popular in the '70s and the early '80s, but um, at this point, he's going to be slowly phased out, just like Patterson, just like Chief J. Strombo. Uh, but uh, this this run, this final run, he's going to have with. Uh, be Brian Blair will be the probably the last time he got a, a a push of some sort. No, a push of any sort. And somehow I missed reading the most important match of them all. Probably the most important WWF TV match in years. Sergeant Slaughter versus the Iron Sheik. It was a, a really weird match. Steve, do you remember how this match went? Yeah, actually, I was able to see it a few weeks ago. I saw it on uh, YouTube or Daily Motion, and basically, uh, it, it, and 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 like you just said, it, it was probably the most important TV match going all the way back to the Bruno Zabisco match. I mean, that that's how big this match was, and basically, you know, they they have the the match begins, uh, Sheik sneak attacks Slaughter, 
And then for whatever the length of the match was, five minutes or so, Sheik just beats the hell out of him, just pounds him from pillar to post. Uh, Slaughter near the end of the match is is really starting to rev up or hulk up, however you want to say it. And uh, he's ready to just explode on Sheik, but then Sheik just bails on the match, you know, leaves the ring. Uh, him and Blassie go walk to the back, and a seething Slaughter is left alone in the ring, just ready to explode. And um, I don't think they could have executed the angle more perfectly. I mean, it just left the fans uh, salivating, just waiting to see you know, when this match could, could really happen. And they wanted to see it in their own town, of course. When I first saw this match, I, did, you know, I didn't understand wrestling beyond what I read in the aftermags and saw on the TV. I'm like, why is this guy walking out of the in the middle of this big match? Why is he chickening out in you know, in front of the whole TV audience? Well, duh, they, like you said, they it was the perfect finish because it left you wanting more. It made you want to see Sergeant Slaughter get even with this guy after all the stuff that happened last week, after this guy had said all these horrible things about the United States, and now he sneak attacks Slaughter and he doesn't hang around to get what he had coming to him. Yeah, he he couldn't even get like one lick. And I mean, uh, when you and I had talked about prior WWF things in the past, like run-ins and different angles they had done, um, usually the uh, baby face would get at least a couple of licks in, a couple of shots in, and, and then the heel would uh, you know head for higher grounds with their manager. But this time it was so uh, shocking because uh, Sheik didn't take one blow. He, he just walked out of the ring completely unscathed and uh, just bailed on the match, and Slaughter was just... Uh, uh, ready to explode and and just uh, seething in the ring and uh, and and that was definitely you know f- from a fan perspective you just wanted to buy a ticket to get there and see this in person yourself because you knew once Slaughter finally gets his hands on this guy he's gonna you know kill the Sheik. Yeah, and I'll tell you something, Sergeant Slaughter. At this point, I mean, it was it was the moment everyone was waiting for. It had been obvious. For at least a few weeks, that Sergeant Slaughter was on the path to becoming a babyface. He's finally there. And Steve, tell me if you agree with this. I think he was almost as over as Jimmy Snooker was when he turned, which is more of a, a testament to how, how incredibly over Jimmy Snooker was. I mean, Sergeant Slaughter is, he's right up there with Jimmy Snooker as far as like, you know, Jimmy Snooker's popularity in 1982 versus Sergeant Slaughter's popul- popularity right now in 1984. Yeah, I, I'd have to agree with you on that. Um, they did this slow build, and and when they did things like that that made sense, uh, it really added to the credibility and, and made you, you know, the fact that they strung this thing out over, you know, a period of weeks, like, uh, they had their little exchange in the aisle way, and and then they had uh, slaughter at the house shows, uh, you know, feuding with other heels, and uh, and and then playing the Marine Corps theme, and and of course Sheik uh, on his end, you know, beating Backlund, who you know, a lot of the fans cared about, and then uh, and then him losing the title to Hogan, and uh, you know him and Blassie egging on the American fans, so it just. Uh, you know, I, I would agree with you. I would say that Slaughter at his peak, and he's not even reached the peak yet. He, he's still, you know, going higher and higher and higher. Um, he is definitely in that snooker uh, territory, and uh, 
and and definitely uh, comparable to what Hulk Hogan will will reach at some point too. Yeah, I I thought Sergeant Slaughter. I mean, by right now, Sergeant Slaughter is the number two babyface in the company. I think he has surpassed the 1984 version of Jimmy Snuka. All-Star Wrestling was pretty non-eventful. We have wins by Rocky Johnson, Tony Atlas, Mass Superstar, Ivan Putski, who's still around. Uh, Eddie Gilbert gets a win. Greg Valentine gets a win. They replay Sergeant Slaughter and Iron Sheik, of course. Orndorff gets a win, and the team of Blair and Gurria get a win. Uh, moving on to the Wrestling from at the Chase show. Pretty big show we've got here. We've got uh, a Battle Royal, which was won by Big John Studd. Uh, Jimmy Snooker against Mr. Fuji. Mr. Fuji is still com- uh, considered competitive. Yeah, he. I mean, he was still at this time mainly teaming with uh, Tiger Chung Lee and their tag team. And uh, Fuji had been around for such a long time. He was just a WWF regular. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of the national fans, uh, seeing him in other markets like Ohio and different places, uh, you know they weren't used to seeing Mr. Fuji, but now they're seeing him, and and it gives uh, you know Snuka a, a a big win uh, on TV. Yeah, totally. And then we have Rocky. Now we don't have results. All we have are the matches: Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas defending the titles against Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch. And then we have a huge main event for television: Hulk Hogan and Mass Superstar. I guess they weren't kidding around when they were trying to conquer St. Louis. Yeah, definitely. I I was doing some research on this and uh, reading what was going on at the time and the Observer and and even Dave Meltzer at the time said that he felt like uh, this wrestling at the chase uh, Vince edition was going to be uh, comparable to World Class's TV show, which uh, Meltzer at the time thought was the premier wrestling show as far as uh, state of the art production and quality matches and uh but uh, definitely, um, that's it's a stacked lineup for a TV show. Yeah, the uh, the reason World Class had such great production was the the guy who owned the Dallas Mavericks uh, put together his own production company to broadcast basketball games, and he approached Vin, Fritz and said, "Hey, you know, I've got a lot of open dates on this, and it it, it surpassed anything that was out there for wrestling." I mean, and the WWF had really good production at this point too. Yeah, yeah, you, you can definitely tell the WWF had uh, stepped it up and made their production more brighter, and there were more graphics, and uh, and of course the almost nonstop mention of the WWF name or, or World Wrestling Federation uh, was was quite different than how it had been in the seventies and the early eighties. Yeah, we you know. I love studio wrestling as much as the, as the next person. But, you know, when you look at Florida, Mid-Atlantic, Georgia, you know, all doing their thing from a TV studio, and then you see world-class and WWF in big arenas, I mean, it just makes it look a lot more major league. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I mean, seeing some of the old footage from Mid-Atlantic on some of these, like, A&E wrestling documentaries and the, the dark side of the ring, I mean, it had its cachet, I think. I mean, the fact that they had a little set and, you know, Gordon Soley was there, or the announcer was there. And, and, and I mean, people, you know, were used to that and, and they liked that. And, and, and now, of course, it, it does seem passe, but uh, uh, I'm sure any wrestling show today would just uh, <laughs> love to have the kind of uh, ratings that those shows had because it was just, it was just you know, must-see TV back in the day. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I mean, we both lived for wrestling. I mean, it was appointment TV for us. You know, my friends, hey, you want to come to the pool? It's like, no, wrestling's on. Forget it. 
But anyway, <laughs> the Philadelphia Spectrum, February 18th, 1984. So, by the way, before I get started here, I want to thank the guys at the history of WWE.com. Uh, we get a lot of our, our materials uh, that we use for the show from them. So Richard Land and Graham Carthon, big shout out to you guys and thank you for thank you for your resource. Yeah, 16,000 reported fans, which obviously is a nice draw. Uh, the opener, Brian Blair against Rene Goulet. Steve, this was not a good match. You know, I, I watched it, and I, I thought it was actually um, okay for what it was supposed to be. Um, when I watched it, I thought to myself, this is kind of like uh, the way um, maybe a Florida um, opening match would be on a Florida house show. You know, keep it in the ring. Nothing, nothing crazy going on. Just, just keep a lot of wrestling, a lot of holds, and there were a lot of rest holds and a lot of things. Uh, but you could tell uh, Brian Blair um, was was what the fans were excited about. I mean, here's a new uh, kind of like a new version of a backland type. Uh, you know, mostly uh, wrestling, uh, but he had more fire than backland. He he had a decent look, and uh, Goulet, uh, you know, had been in the WWF for a hundred years, but uh, he's playing a villain role. And and I, th- I thought they both played their parts well here just a kind of an an opener not not like a hot opener but just an opener to introduce this young guy and to uh, get the crowd uh, let them come in the building because they're gonna have a bigger show waiting for them ahead no i agree with you and then you know renegi lay like you said he had been in the wwf uh almost nonstop for since like 1980 i know he took off for florida in 1981 but quickly found his way back to the wwf this time as a heel and i yeah he worked in the office too maybe not yet but eventually he was going to be in, in the office so good for him yeah he, he ended up being a, one of the long-running road agents and uh i remember he did a shoot interview for one of the companies uh uh, Sean Oliver's, I think, and uh, and he has such a thick accent. I at first I thought like, man, this guy's gonna have a shoot interview. It's probably gonna sell off the racks and sell thousands of copies. But I think his accent was so thick, I, I really doubt too many people really uh, searched it out. I should check that out because Sean Oliver is a really good interviewer. Jose Luis Rivera's push, his unexplainable push, continues as he beats Steve Lombardi. Now, this match was was really dreadful. Uh, During the match, uh, they're getting tons of... uh cat calls and uh, boring chants and uh and you know these guys were, were doing their best lombardi was still pretty green here and uh jose luis rivera mac rivera was just a little bit more experienced uh it was really a, a just a filler match but just just a, a terrible match to watch yeah uh <laughs> it, it was not good roddy piper and don morocco challenged tony atlas and rocky johnson for the wwf tag team championships unfortunately Unfortunately, they fall short, and longtime heel, lead heel, Don Morocco and Roddy Piper go at it after the match. Yeah, this was a really unusual match. I mean, um, uh, you know, I I look at results periodically. Uh, I obviously haven't looked at all the results. Uh, I was really stunned to know that these two had teamed up, uh, Piper and Morocco, even if it was just this one match against Allison and, and Johnson. It was so very early in uh, Piper's run with them. And uh, I guess part of it would probably was because Morocco was – 
Uh, I'm thinking probably the most overheal at this time, you know, just a complete heal and super, super over, especially after the feud with Snuka. Why don't, why don't you have Piper team with him, give him the rub so people would know that this other guy, Piper, is just as bad a badass as uh, Morocco is. And uh, so it was funny to see them kind of uh, um, paired up together, uh, kind of an oddball tag team, uh, uh, even though, you know, they're friends in real life. But uh, it was interesting to see the dynamic of the match. Um, Atlas is just, you know, unbelievably muscular. Uh, Johnson was there doing his spots. And uh, I think Morocco took like a double. Um, both guys had backdrop Morocco. And then I think he got hit with another, maybe like a double drop kick. And then he got hit with a sunset slip. And like he, like you said, at the end of the match, Piper and Morocco had some words and kind of like almost a tease of a, of a turn there, but nothing really happened, but it was kind of a nice throwaway match and you know, not really a multi-star match, but just an interesting one to, to see these guys uh, in a unique matchup. It was. And, you know, I, I was unaware of this match in 1984, but really in 84, it seemed like Roddy Piper, I said earlier in, in the podcast that there were only two managers. I forgot that Roddy Piper was also managing, at least at first. But I was thinking this like before, you know, before having ever known about this match, you had Piper managing on championship wrestling, at least Paul Orndorff, not Paul Orndorff. Uh, he was managing Dr. D. David Schultz, and who am I forget? Why am I forgetting this all of a sudden? Well, John Studd periodically. Studd? And then uh, in Orndorff, too. Okay. Yeah, he that's right. He was managing Orndorff already. So you've got. it mm-hmm. was almost like you had these three outsiders, these new guys, to the WWF, and they're kind of a faction, and it's almost like they didn't care about the old guard of heels. Like these guys were there. It was it was good. It was good heel heat, but they came across as like you know, punks from the outside. What can I say? Yeah, yeah definitely. There was that element of uh, they're challenging the old guard, and uh, definitely interesting there. And um, one one thing I thought was funny about the match uh, during the match. Uh, the fans are chanting beach bum, beach bum. And I'm thinking to myself, this is Philadelphia. This is a big heel town. <laughs> I'm surprised they weren't rooting the heels. But uh, I think I think uh, by this point, it hadn't really crossed over to be a heel town quite yet. Maybe two or three years later. No, the, there was no such thing as a heel town in the old WWF. But like many <laughs> things, uh, WWF-wise, things are changing. Tito Santana is now defending the Intercontinental Championship against former champion the Iron Sheik. Uh, Tito had some words for us before the match. Let's hear Tito being interviewed by Cal Rudman. Thank you, Dick Graham. Champ, Tito Santana. The wrestling world is just dawning to the fact that you are the champion. It happened exactly one week ago, last Saturday, in the Boston Gardens, you defeated the magnificent Morocco. And we're going to talk about that. But before we do, we've got to deal with a problem that you have tonight. A rematch with the Iron Sheik. Just about a month ago, you were shooting for the championship of the World Wrestling Foundation. And now, you're defending the Intercontinental Championship. But he has to take it from you. That puts a whole different color on the story, doesn't it? That's right. You know, uh, it's been a week that I've been a champion now, and uh, it's a completely different outlook that I have 
going into this match. The Sheik cost me the World Championship title the last time I was here with him. You know, all I was ever since I came to the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, my goal was to go after Don Morocco and take that Intercontinental belt. And all of a sudden, something else comes up. I have a chance at a World Title match against the Sheik, who defeated Bob Backlund. And in the meantime, I had been training so hard, I was ready for, for the Sheik, you know. Uh, and the Sheik knows that the last time I wrestled him, wrestled him here in Philadelphia. He knew you were ready. He knew I was ready, boy. I gave him everything and a little bit more that he could handle, and the fans were right there with me. Uh, there was no doubt in my mind. Did you get suckered in with that chair? I mean, I couldn't believe that, that you put your hands on it, and that's what ended up costing you the chance to be the champ. Well, a, a lot of times, a lot of things happen in, 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 uh, in the match that the referee does not understand because of different circumstances. The Sheik brought the chair into the ring, intended to use it on me. And finally we took it away from him and I was kind of struggling for the chair and the sheik came and hit me in the back and pushed me into the referee and I ran into him and the referee thought that I intentionally hit him therefore it was a, it was a double disqualification or I was disqualified. I think it was a double disqualification because the sheik was disqualified for bringing it in and then later on I became disqualified for hitting the referee with it too. What do you have in store for the Sheik tonight? Uh, what tactics are we going to see? Well, uh, the only thing that I have uh, in mind, basically, is to keep that title match. He's going after me now, and I have to be very careful, because of the way he wrestles, the tactics, he's going to use anything. You know, he was the shortest-lived champion in the history of, of wrestling. 28 days. 28 days, to be exact. And now he's a little embarrassed. You know, he's from Iran, represents the Ayatollah or whoever. I don't even, I'm not very familiar with, with his kind of people. And he wants to get that belt and take it back to, to, Amer to, to Iran from America. And all I can say is, Sheik, you're going to have hell, brother, taking the belt here in Philadelphia from Tito Santana. I'm not going to say what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to give it 110% and keep that belt here in America. Well, I wanted you to discuss the match and we have a little bit of time. Uh, I don't even know if they have any tape of uh, your defeating Magnificent Morocco. Uh, will you give us an idea of just what you did to defeat him? I understand it's the toughest match you ever had in your career, and he almost had you a couple of times. Well, I'm going to do a little explaining. Uh, the match was filmed, and uh, from what I understand, uh, I don't know if it was Morocco's or uh, Albano's doing, but all of a sudden the, the, the film can be found. And it was the toughest match that I've ever been involved in. And uh, I had been practicing. I knew that if I was going to beat Morocco, I would have to do something that Morocco hadn't seen. And at one point of the match, I felt that Tito Santana had given it everything he had, and I was really down and hurt, and I thought, I'm not going to do it tonight. And then all of a sudden, the people were right there behind me, and they just made me. You know, I don't believe in going 110%, and the reason I say it now is because the people, I think the people make you give it, give it that extra, I always believe 100% is 100%, but the people made me grab that extra 10%, and Morocco had me down, he, he almost beat me a couple of times, and I could hear the people in the background just screaming, you know, they, don't, they didn't want me to give up, and boy, all of a sudden, the thing that I've been practicing on, Morocco caught me with one of my flying elbows that he had been working on. And I know he probably figured that he could beat me if he could get me with it. But he didn't, it wasn't quite as effective as my elbow. And he went for it again, and I dropped down.
and it was a perfect situation for me to use what I had been working for so long. I jumped up up in the air and Morocco went under under me and I hooked him with my ankles and it was a, a sun, it's a combination, it ended up a sunset flip and Morocco didn't know what hit him. You know, it was a, that's, that's what I had worked for. I had, I said to myself, I got to catch him with something that Morocco hadn't seen before. And I took him over and I sunset flipped him and it was one, two, three and I couldn't believe it, boy. The reason I knew that I had beat him was because of the response of people. The people in Boston were going crazy, they were going bananas, and, and I knew I'd done, I knew I had, I'd become the Intercontinental Champion, and boy, it was the greatest feeling in the world. Good luck to you, Tito Santana. We'll be right back. Okay, couple of things. Number one, um, my name is John McAdam, and I also have a podcast called Stick to Wrestling. If that was part of a Stick to Wrestling podcast. The name of the podcast would be Math Lessons with Tito Santana. Number two, and this is important, um, I want to thank Lou Kippelman for doing such a great job with the audio. Now, some of you might be saying, hey, the audio wasn't that great. Like, no, Lou made it a lot better than it was. The, um, that interview, that show was broadcast um, on Spectrum, a a cable station that was only available in and around Philadelphia, and not everyone had a VCR back in 1984, so this is surviving footage that we have. It, you know, just, you know, I had it, and the audio just isn't that great. Lou made it better than what I have. Of course, the audio is always just for review purposes, and here's something I forgot to ask Sheldon about being a part of the Boston Garden thing. They did not use hardly any of the Santana versus Morocco match. You know, after they took all that time setting up the lights, they must have taken like 20, 25 minutes. It's, it's the end of the night. And we're all out of patience. I believe the reason, Steve, that they, they never released the video of Morocco versus Santana is because the match was so terrible. Now, some of you are saying, really? whoa, Morocco was really good in the ring, and Tito Santana was even better. I don't know what happened, but Steve, that was a bad, bad match. Yeah, and and uh, I, I, you know, I haven't seen the match, so I, I can't really <laughs> comment on it. But my take on it, and, and also going back to the match we just reviewed, the uh, Morocco Piper against the Johnson and Atlas team, I, I honestly think uh, much like. Um, you know Joe Frazier against Muhammad Ali, uh, the, those uh, matches, and the uh, Muhammad Ali against George Foreman, the Thriller in Manila. I think uh, you know again. I'm not. I'm I'm breaking the kayfabe here, but uh, I think I think Morocco and Snuka, neither one really were ever the same again after their hellacious feud that they had with each other. Especially Morocco, he just seemed like. Especially here in this time frame, you know, early '84, he's not really being pushed on TV. He's looking really bloated and tired and exhausted. As he's been doing a lot of these national touring shows, going to California, Ohio, and every point in between. And uh, I, I can see why it was a, a bad match from that perspective. I think Morocco was just completely fried, completely exhausted, and I think those wars with Snuka played a major role in that. That is an excellent point. I never really stopped to think about that. I mean, neither Buzz Sawyer nor Tommy Rich were the same after their feud. And, you know, just as a side note, you brought up the thriller, thriller in Manila. I mean, I saw that fight again for the first time in at least 20 years, like about a year ago. And it's a miracle those uh -huh. two didn't kill each other. 
<laughs> Very true. But, you know, Morocco's got to be one of my all-time favorite wrestlers. And, uh, you know, in the years that followed, I mean, he'd have a lot of more success as far as uh, being still a major part of the national expansion. But from a critical standpoint, his match quality really went down around this time frame uh, from 83. And, um, and I mean, I still liked him, but it just... Uh, if you read the Observer, uh, they really uh, ranked on him and uh, said that he really was uh, past his prime at this point. Uh, so, so that's kind of sad. Well, a couple of things. Number one, um, I mean, I remember when he came back in 1982 after his very successful 1981 run. He came back quickly, and he had put on a lot of weight and not in the right places. Uh, but number two, I saw a shoot interview with uh, Don Morocco, and they said, you know, a lot of people think you would have been a great NWA champion. What do you think? And he's like, no way. I, I, I didn't want it. I didn't want to take on that schedule. I was you know, happy going home every couple of years, you know, spending a few months on the beach. And I think by this point, Morocco probably knew exactly when he was leaving and was just kind of killing time, you know, just just biding time until he got to go home. Just the one thing, I mean, you know, it's like, okay, Don, I get all that, but could you please have one good match, match just good enough for us to air the title change? Can you do that for us? And apparently he couldn't. (laughs) That's too bad. And that would have been good for Tito to have a, a match like that to uh, kind of kick off his title reign. But as time would, would prove out, Tito Santana proved to be an excellent Intercontinental Champion and was very popular. He definitely was. And, and like I said, his, his feet grew to fill the shoes because when he first won the title, I didn't see the star power in him. But, you know, as the months went on, I, I was like, okay, this guy's legit. The result of that match is a double countout at 9.13 when both men began fighting on the floor. It was actually a pretty good match. Yeah, yeah, d- definitely uh, a good match. Um, and and what, was, what, was our, uh, what was our next match we're going to do? Uh, the next match, we're going to have Mr. Fuji and Tiger Chung Lee against Eddie Gilbert and Tony Gurria. Before we go to that, let's hear some audio from Mr. Fuji and, well, theoretically, Tiger Chung Lee. Thank you, Dick Graham. Tiger Lee and Mr. Fuji up against the profile Pretty Boy Twins, Tony Gurria and Eddie Gilbert. Are you going after Eddie Gilbert's neck? Look, where's that? We go for either opponent. Gurria or Eddie Gilbert. Neck, leg, body, no mean no difference to Mr. Fuji and Tiger Lee. Because we emphasize to the public, to all American fans, when we in ring, we in ring to win. Also, we in ring to torture. We make them scream like American pigs. We make them yell and beg. That's what we do. We don't just beat right away one, two, three. We take time. We make them suffer. That's what we love to see face suffer for pettiness and help. You understand? Oh, I understand. Is that the way you feel about it? He don't talk nothing. He don't say nothing. All he do is do, and Mr. Fuji said, Lee, you go. You torture. You make him suffer. He look at Mr. Fuji. He said, very good, Mr. Fujisan. Me, Fujisan, Japanese. Him, Korean, Japanese. He's captain. You understand? I understand. You understand? Very good, American boy. You very good announcer. Very good mind. Now you understand? Give it. 
And hey, you, Gardia, you in big trouble tonight. I am very, very sorry for you too. Very, very sorry. Perhaps both of the people, I don't know. But perhaps, perhaps you don't see tomorrow. I'm very sorry too. How do you plan to, how do you plan to counter their speed? We don't plan nothing. We just use our ring psychology because I am the master of martial arts. He is the master of Taekwondo. The kicking karate from Korea, and I'm master of everything. We don't make no plan. We just do what we're going to do. Would you like to say goodbye to the audience? You don't say nothing. I say everything. What's the matter you? I am captain, and me, when I stick it, I stick it for me and Charlie Charlie. You understand me? Bye-bye. We'll be right back. Never mind math lessons with Tito Santana. The show would be called Pretty Boy Twins. That Cal Rip, that Cal Rudman is a character. <laughs> you know, at the time, and I know in the Observer, they were uh, all over Cal Rudman and Dick Graham is is the worst announcers in all of wrestling, or at least candidates for being the worst announcers. But um, I think, as Brian Lass has pointed out on some of his shows. Uh, you know, some of those announcers, like the uh, AWA guys, like uh, Larry Nelson is a good example. You know, at least he had some personality. <laughs> at least he was different. I mean, Cal Rudman and Dick Graham, uh, he, both of them at different aspects or different times, you can see they're really enjoying themselves and, you know, really having some fun and some laughs. Uh, they weren't really... <laughs> good announcers by uh the you know if you're if you're ranking them but they were different and unique and um i think now looking back uh you know 30 years later uh 40 years later even uh it, it, i can see where you can kind of enjoy them uh, in a campy kind of a way i mean he reminds me of bob loose the old chicago announcer awa chicago announcer he's not the greatest announcer of of all to say the very least he's not but there's something to be said about the guy being out there clearly having the time of his life and i didn't know you know when this was going on but like you know cal rip you got cal i keep trying to call him cal ripkin cal rudman <laughs> he didn't need that gig i mean he was a successful music promoter he was doing it for fun yeah, and again, Vince would have guys like him on and have him be a part of the show, and and I'm sure Cal Rudman, in whatever way, probably you know helped Vince along the way as far as the marketing aspect, and you know got him in yep. touch with people he should need to know and things like that. And 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 you're right, he was having the time of his life, and uh, it's kind of neat to see uh, these interviews that are really. Uh, uh, except for, for ultra diehard fans like you and I, I'm sure a lot of the fans have either never seen or they've forgotten. And Mr. Fuji had been around forever at this point, but he still cracks me up with that line, I'm going to make you suffer. Yeah, yeah, he he was really good at what he did. This match was really forgettable. Uh, I mean, Eddie Gilbert it was a would become a great uh, talent in wrestling. He was still uh, kind of, um, you know, in his showing some growing pains and Gria was uh was just a long time WWF guy and uh, but the match was very forgettable but I think one thing that is interesting though on this card I can't think of another WWF card with the exception of maybe one of those uh weird all tag team cards like I think they had one in 86 at the garden where it was just all tag team matches but I remember there's that. three tag team cards on this card and that's very unusual 
good good point. I, I had not figured that out yet. By the way, once again, all the audio footage is for review purposes only. And during that interview, you kind of hear Mr. Fuji bullying, for the lack of a better word, uh, Tiger Chung Lee, not allowing him to speak. Sometimes uh, on TV, I remember once at the Boston Garden, they displayed some heat towards each other. I mean, talk about it looked like they were building towards the ultimate feud no one wanted to see, but they, they didn't do it. Yeah, and you know, Tiger Chung Lee would would continue to be a, um, a popular hand at WWF shows for the next couple of years. He did get a big break in Hollywood, a big role in Paramount's 1986 Eddie Murphy film, uh, The Golden Child, that came out around Christmas time, which uh, made uh, I think either close to 100 million or over 100 million dollars. Uh, but I think as an Eddie Murphy vehicle, it was kind of considered a flop at Paramount because they thought it would make 200 million. So. That I mean, after Beverly Hills Cop, no matter what was coming out after that, was going to be relatively a, a bomb. But no, I, I had forgotten about him <laughs> in that. And yeah, he had been, he was still with the WWF in 1987. I know for sure he might have still been there in 1988. We're talking about Tiger Chung Lee here. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he, he was a good guy. I mean, he was a good hand. And uh, he had been a uh, probably a bigger role in the AWA in the 70s. He was Kim Duck in that promotion. And uh, just just a, a you know, very solid veteran performer. And uh, here he is kind of slumming with Mr. Fuji at this point in their careers. But, uh, but you know, it's, it was a big card, a big house. I'm sure they made a good payday from it. No, he was Kim Duck everywhere else except for the WWF, but of course he is best known as Ch- Tiger Chung Lee. Uh, yeah, that match, it went uh, Fuji and Tiger, Ch- Lung- <laughs> Tiger Chung Lee did defeat the Pretty Boy Twins, and now we move to the main event, WWF champion Hulk Hogan versus the Masked Superstar. Let's go backstage once again with Cal Rudman and see what Hulk Hogan has to say. Rudman here, backstage at the Spectrum. In just about a few minutes, we're going to have a match pitting the irresistible force against the immovable object. Well, I guess I know who this is. Uh, You are blocking the view from my millions of music fans. Hulkamania, Hulk Hogan. You know something, killer Cal? It's been a long time, little dude, since I've seen you. And you know something? You're still dressing good and looking fine. Let me tell you, Philadelphia man, I got goosebumps up and down my body because the Hulkster is here. And I got something to say. You see, it's been a little while. My man Cal ain't seen the Hulkster. But killer Cal, as soon as you see the Hulkster, walk out in the center of the ring. Something's going to happen to you, dude. What's going to happen? You're going to get Hulkamania. You're going to take one hit, one hit of the air out there. It's the ultimate natural high, Daddy, because when I hit the ring, there's going to be so much electricity, more electricity than when I took Rocky Balboa and pressed him over my head and threw him out in Philadelphia's own Liberty Bell City. But the thing is, I come into town a couple days early to do some hanging and banging, Daddy, to train the 24th Pythons, which are a little bit bigger than your head, dude. And the thing is, double bite, double bite. Double try, hanging and banging. Keep on stakes and double plays. Wait a minute, you're getting me off the subject. The thing I was talking about, man, you're getting me pumped already. I was in town a couple days early, and everywhere I went, people were saying, Hulkster, you've been gone so long, man. We're happy to see you, and we're glad that you're the WWF champion because now we got somebody that we can stand behind and now we got somebody that is a fighting champion, and I will not hide behind a manager or any wrestling alliance. Do you plan to pull 
the mask off the mask superstar to humiliate him in addition to beating him and defending your championship. Well, the thing is, killer town, I got nothing personal against the man. But the holster is bad to the bone. And the thing is, I'm going out there with one thing in mind. To remain the WWF champion. And the thing is, I'm going to beat the man. Yes, I am, because Hulkamania is going to be running wild. But if the man takes a few shortcuts, if he tries to do a few dirty tricks to the holster, I just might go ahead and jerk that mask off his ugly head. I want everybody to know, and in spite of the centurion, <laughs> the centurion tones that you hear, Hulk Hogan really is personally a nice guy. I was trying to get him to talk in a calm voice. Man, I am calm. You ought to hear me when I'm wired up, Daddy. I'm like thunder and lightning in a wide open field. But the thing is, the Hulkster is one heck of a nice guy, Daddy. I mean, I am the All-American. I train, I say my prayers, I eat my vitamins every day, Daddy. And that's what I get going for me. I'm on a roll. I'm doing everything right. And I can hold WWF, the whole United States of America behind me, the Purple Mountains, Majesty, everything. I can understand it. But I spoke to the mass superstar. And he said, you got it, and he wants it. Everything he's ever dreamed about it. And he intends to wipe the place out with you tonight. Well, the thing is, little dude, the thing is, the life I'm living, the life I'm living is reality, brother. I've trained all my life for it. The life the superstar wants is nothing but a dream. There is no way, no way, Daddy, on this face of the earth, the superstar is going to put the hoster down with thousands and thousands and thousands of Philadelphia knights standing behind me. You heard it. You better be ringside. You better be watching in my corner because Hulkamania is going to get you. And this is Python power. Hulkamania is running wild. I'll be sitting on the front row. Throw the superstar right into my lap. We'll be right back. Killer Cal. Hey, are you going to take the mask off and humiliate him? What was that? <laughs> well, it, uh, it was it was a good Hogan interview. You know, it was, uh, you know, it, it, again, you got to remember the times. This was uh, February of 84. Hogan had only been in the WWF now for a couple of months after being a heel four years prior. Um, so this match was really, uh, you know, again, um, his first real foray for Philadelphia as a babyface, I think. I don't think he'd been on any shows before this one. And um, you can tell he's really... <laughs> you know, sounds like peak Hulk Hogan here. He didn't really need to warm up that much. I mean, talk about a stark contrast to Bob Backlund, who Hogan seemed to take a little bit of a veiled shot at during that interview, saying the fans finally have someone they can stand behind. Yeah, I, I, and I didn't pick up on that. That's a good good catch, John. I, I missed that completely. Um, so, you know, the, the match is going to happen here. We, we both saw the match. Um, I, there were a couple of things that were interesting about it. Um, Joey Morella uh, ref the match, and uh, I think that was the first time I had ever seen him uh, in a WWF show. Monsoon Sun is the referee. Um, when Hogan came out, they played uh, Eye of the Tiger, and... Um, they actually, uh, I don't know if you caught this, but uh, they played the whole song <laughs> before the match started. So uh, there was a lot of him in the ring, uh, you know, posing and waving and all this uh, before the match started. And you could tell that the addition of the music really got the crowd pumped up and really they're really rocking and rolling to that. And uh, 
What did you, would you, what did you think about his entrance and the beginning of the match? Oh, I mean, I thought, you know, it, it was, it was very similar to what I saw in Boston. You know, the crowd mm-hmm. has this new kind of baby face, way different than the Bob Backlands, even way different than the Ivan Putskis and Tony Atlases of the world. I mean, you know, Hogan told, comes out and tells you, Hey, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to get it done. I'm going to kick this guy's butt. And he did it. I think it was like a more uh, more interactive experience with Hogan because uh, you know I, I I we both had been to some of his uh, cards or quite a few of his cards and it's like you know we, you see him come out of uh, the back they play the music uh, the crowd is going apeshit <laughs> he's he's posing he's doing his thing that the fans are on their feet clapping I mean even even me sometimes a cynical fan uh, who maybe be sitting there with my arms folded. I, I couldn't help it. I got up on my feet. I was clapping. I was cheering. And uh, it, you really get caught up in it. You really, uh, unless you're really a miserable person. But I, I enjoyed it. It was great. No, it was, it was definitely something different. You talked a little bit about the, the ring music. WWF was a little bit late to the party with entrance music. The first time I had ever seen it used was the Freebirds using it in Mid-South Wrestling in 1980. But, you know, by this time, it had been popularized in world class with the Von, with the Freebirds and the Von Erics. Then the WWF finally has entrance music used for a heel, Sergeant Slaughter. Of course, he's turning babyface now, and it's the perfect entrance music. But I guess the point is, Hulk Hogan's only the second guy who's ever used entrance music in the WWF, and it's kind of new to them. Like, they haven't figured out when to start playing it and when to stop playing it. Yeah, yeah, they definitely, um, they definitely hadn't had it all planned out. And I don't know if Vince was backstage at the show giving cues or whatever. But uh, um, I mean, one thing I noticed that they they didn't do, um, they and I think somebody dropped the ball uh, after the match. They didn't, they didn't uh, cue up the theme. Uh, they, they didn't have the music play after the match, which is, you know, would become, uh, you know, probably even bigger than playing it before the match. So uh, that, oh, yeah. that was kind of a dropped uh, ball there there was a there was a little brief moment in in the early part of the match i think uh hogan had dumped uh ed outside the ring or superstar outside the ring and when hogan got back in the ring and and he did like a little almost like a rick flair strut for a minute i don't know where that came from but uh i i think that was maybe the last time you'll see him do a rick flair uh, strut until maybe he had matches with rick flair uh, no, Hulk Hogan had never wrestled Ric Flair before 1991. Um, but yeah, I get it. They're in <laughs> uncharted territory when it comes to music. They, they haven't quite figured out the formula yet. yet. You know, Cal Rudman said something interesting during the interview. He's like, you know, uh, I know you are can be a quieter personality. You can be a quieter interview. I mean, these guys... They seem to go back a long way, and I just wish that you know we had audio from 1981 where Hogan does a quieter interview. Wait a minute, we have yeah. that? Wishes do, do come true here at the National Expansion. <laughs> Let's hear an interview from Valentine's Day, 1981, where Cal Rudman is interviewing Hulk Hogan. You can't, obviously, it's just audio, and it is for review purposes only. But throughout the whole thing, the two of them are cracking up. Hogan's supposed to be a heel, and he's chumming it up with Cal Rudman on Spectrum Television. Let's hear that interview now. This is Cal Rudman, and it's my distinct pleasure to interview Hulk Hogan and uh, get behind the man 
and behind the image. <laughs> Very good, Hulk. Why aren't you champion? What do you mean, why aren't I champion? I'm champion all over the world. I'm champion from North America to South America. I'm champion from the ghetto to the Empire State Building. The reason I'm not champion is because the skinny little red-haired, freckle-faced geek, Bob Backham, doesn't have the guts. Not for the first time I beat him here in the spectrum. Not for the second time I beat him. But the third time, Bobby Backlund, scared to death like a school kid. He's scared to put the title on the line. You know something? You look a lot like Bob Backlund. You're short, scrawny, and out of shape. That's the reason Backlund doesn't want anything else to do with me. Do you have any more stupid questions for the incredible Hulk Hogan? Well, I'm not a fighter. I'm a lover. Are you a lover? <laughs> Let me tell you something. Loving, loving, wrestling, weightlifting, loving, eating, and being Mr. Personality, they all go together as one. As far as loving goes, there are no women, no women in the Philadelphia area, no women in New York City, no women in Jersey that could even bum a kiss. A kiss off these lips. Let me tell you why. I import all my fine products, everything I want, wine, women, and song. I import it all. The finest I've got. I fly in from Cocoa Beach on the weekends just to keep my anxiety down. I'm always high. I'm always on top of the world. I am number one, whether it be on women, whether it be on wrestling, or whether it be on blasting about 750 pounds off my chest. Yes, I am a lover. So why aren't you in the movie? You know something? I'm really glad you asked another ignorant question. Last week, I just flew out to L.A. Any of you who do not believe this, Hulk Hogan never tells a lie. Hey, you tell that goofy cameraman to keep his comments to himself, all right? Hulk Hogan never tells a lie. I just came from L.A. <coughs> Me and Mr. Sly Stallone sitting down talking business, talking money, talking future films, and talking Rocky III. Uh, Hulk Hogan, you will see him in Rocky III, so just keep your eyes open. I will make many more movies after that. Also, a nationally syndicated magazine, which I cannot name at this present time, has asked me to do a complete centerfold, a complete layout of the luscious body from the beautiful top of my head to the end of the tippy toe. I'm going to show them all, brother. I'm going to show it all to them in many more movies after that. Well, I'm really impressed uh, by that. What is the part you're going to play in Rocky III? That is none of your business as of this point in time. That is between me and my cooperatives. I will never tell you anything I don't want you to know. You just remember to go pay your six or seven dollars. Just like this arena is paying six and seven dollars. Maybe I'm not in the main event tonight, but the only reason this place is going to be packed is because of me. The one, the only, the undefeated Hulk Hogan. 24-inch biceps. That's what they're coming to see. They're coming to see the body. They're coming to see the real number one wrestling in the wrestling world. And they're going to come see Rocky III, not because of the part I'm playing. They're coming just to see me alive and in cover. Well, I think you've used up about all the time we can have and all the cameras. And I'll tell you what, I wouldn't spend any more time with you either. All right, now we heard the opinion from the peanut gallery, a man demeaning the Philadelphia women. He's obviously never been on Chestnut Street. So since we've heard from the peanut gallery, now let's get an opposing opinion from the Breakfast of Champions. 
Okay, a lot to talk about here. I think the audio of just the audio part of it does not do it justice because Hogan, you, you can, if you go to YouTube, at least as of right now when we're recording, and you put in the words Hulk Hogan and 1981 for 1981, it comes up and it, it's way funnier than just the audio uh, give, gives it because you can tell the two of them are just clowning on each other. It was great. He, um, <laughs> I, I know uh, from listening to uh, the John Arezzi podcast, and you're listening to a young uh, Paul Heyman, uh, Paul E. Dangerously, and, and you can tell he's kind of like channeling Roddy Piper in some of his earlier day interviews before he becomes uh, ECW's Paul Heyman. Here, when you're seeing this young Terry Bollea in 1981, I can definitely hear him speak almost in the voice of superstar Billy Graham, yep. who is his uh, kind of role model getting into the business. He's got superstars wrapped down. Uh, he just changes some of the verbiage a little bit. Uh, and and uh, But it, it's just so interesting to hear the evolution of Hulk Hogan from 81 to 84. And uh, and I actually, I think the babyface Hulk Hogan with all the... Uh, uh, extra uh, rap and uh, jive and extra enthusiasm uh, seems to work a lot better for him. Oh, totally. I mean, what what a character this guy was. I like the way Cal Rudman kind of nudges him, say, hey, talk about your movie opportunity, for God's sake. Yeah, and, uh, and it's interesting that Hogan actually had a movie opportunity. I mean, back in those days of uh, kayfabe, uh, it's, it was very rare to have a wrestler to have a crossover deal in a, in a movie, especially a major movie like Rocky Three. So um, it's it really uh, played out well for Hogan, that's for sure. Hogan put out a book about 20 years ago, probably a little more than that, and the book, let's just say there were some inaccuracies in that book. I don't want to really rag Hogan, but it's kind of one lie after another, and he told a story in the book about how Vince McMahon basically fired him. Uh, for accepting the role in Rocky Three, I don't know if the story is true or not. I have been told the story is true. Um, he was supposed to go wrestle in the Mid-Atlantic Territory after his WWF run had ended, uh, which is really weird because Hogan had the longest run of any heel I'd ever seen, number one. And number two, he jobbed his way out to Tony Atlas at the end, so it looked like you know just a normal... You know, heel run, except it was longer. But I mean, if if you're if you're Vince, let's say this really happened, right? Which I don't think it did. I mean, how do you ask Hulk Hogan to turn down a role in Rocky Three so that he can re- go wrestle in the Carolinas and Virginia? It's like what Virginia? What is that? Yeah, and and you know, just for our, our listeners that may not know, uh, it was really Vince the the Elder, uh, the Vince Senior, who yes, uh, that is what I meant. Thank fired. you, Steve fired uh, Hulk uh, in that time frame. And you're right. I mean, I think uh, Vince uh, Sr. had the old school promoter mentality, you know, uh, do it. You have to do it our way. Uh, You know, it's kind of like almost like a mafia code. (laughs) You know, you have to stay within the business. Don't leave the family. And uh, so so seeing him go to the outside world of movies was, uh, I guess, in Vince uh, Sr.'s mind, uh, some kind of a... um, backstabbing thing that Hogan was doing, but it really worked out. I mean, maybe the Vince uh, didn't know, uh, Vince the Elder didn't know at the time that he was going to be uh, selling the company to his son in about a year, and his son had uh, 
big plans in mind. And of course, along all as all this is going on behind the scenes, Hogan becomes a big star in the AWA along with the movie. And uh, he becomes really the prime target to to be the, the leader of the national expansion. And this leads us up to right now. So, what did you think of the uh, the Hogan uh, Mass Superstar match? Uh, I thought it was a, I thought it was a good match. I thought it was a a good match to to start off with. But I'll tell you before we go to that, I do want to recommend something to everyone. Uh, once again, YouTube uh, Hulk Hogan versus Bob Backlund at the Philadelphia Spectrum in 1980. Both were really good matches. If you haven't seen these matches yet, I know that's a little bit of a surprise, maybe, to some people, but two excellent matches. You want to check them out. Also, Steve, Hulk Hogan was talking about doing a a centerfold for a magazine, and it turned out that was Wii Magazine, where he posed with one girl, his arm around one girl in a bikini, another girl who was topless, and from what I hear, Mrs. Uh, what's her name? He was married at the time, and the wife was not happy at all. Wow, wow! And and let's thank our super producer Lou Kippelman for that good inside information. Yep, he Lou brought it up, and I was like, oh yeah, I remember this story. So yeah, the the match between Hogan and Superstar, I thought it was exactly what it needed to be. Um, you know, Mass Superstar did what he needed to do to get Hulk Hogan over. Um, I mean, it was a dis- Hogan won by DQ when uh, Superstar got caught using a foreign object. I thought it should have been a clean one, two, three, but that's my only complaint. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. It should definitely have been a clean one, two, three, but it it, it definitely um, allowed uh, Edie uh, a little bit of a break, I guess. Uh, and uh, Hogan tried to get his mask. He couldn't get it. Uh, but, um, you know, it's it just very interesting, an interesting match to see in this kind of a transitional phase. I mean, H- Hogan is fine-tuning his act. I mean, um, the, 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 the lack of music after the match, the lack of the post-match posing, uh, is, seems completely foreign in a Hogan match. But that would soon become the norm, and uh, we would get to uh, uh, see a more polished Hulk Hogan as far as the posing and the music as, as the months would uh, continue. Yeah, we would. And the next match is Salvatore Belomo pinning Butcher Vershawn in one minute and nine seconds. Butcher, we mentioned this before. Butcher Vershawn just does not look good, and he would still be around for the rest of 1984, though. Yeah, yeah, he was he was very uh, obese and uh, almost elderly looking. Yep. And uh, I mean, the only purpose he really served this year was to be in the uh, Butcher Vershawn wedding on TNT, which we'll be reviewing in a few months. Yeah, hopefully they'll get all the TNT episodes up on uh, Peacock by the time we need them, because we need them. <laughs> and the final match on the Philadelphia show is Andre the Giant, the Superfly Jimmy Snuka, defeating Sergeant Slaughter and Dr. D. David Schultz via countout at 343 when Schultz refused to tag into the match. This leads to Schultz and Slaughter brawling on the floor, and at, when it was all said and done, Slaughter comes back to the ring and shakes hands with Andre the Giant and Jimmy Snuka, the babyface turn is here. It, it was really uh, incredibly well done. I, I When I saw the card and I saw that this match was the final match, I assumed that this was your normal uh, Andre end of the card match, just a blow-off match to end the show, send the fans home happy. But it was kind of a unique match because it was uh, two uh, undefeated heels, Slaughter and Schultz, teaming together who never... 
uh, other than other you know random house shows had never really teamed up before. They're going against Andre and Jimmy Snuka, kind of a WWF dream team. Uh, the match, uh, you know, really barely got off the ground, and almost immediately there's dissension between Slaughter and Schultz. Uh, there's friction between them. Uh, uh, Slaughter is getting pounded in the ring, and he's trying to tag out, and, uh, and Schultz turns his back on him. Uh, eventually, uh, the two of them do get into it, and to, to really end the note, uh, end the evening on a high note as far as the card as a whole, um, they do the handshake deal in the ring where Slaughter shakes the hand of both Andre and Jimmy Snuka, and they're all super friends at the end. And they all wave to the fans, and uh, and then after that, uh, Slaughter even does uh, one more um, thing where he says he wants the Sheik. He challenges the Sheik uh, before the end of the night. And uh, overall, I thought this card was really great. It definitely uh, had a lot of high spots to it, a lot of good moments for the fans, and uh, I could tell the fans are definitely chopping for next month's show at Spectrum, which would be headlined by Hogan against the Iron Sheik. Yeah, and this actually, that angle got them to buy some time, because if I recall correctly, the next Philadelphia show was Sergeant Slaughter against Dr. D. David Schultz, so you're keeping Slaughter busy with Schultz with the local angle, and you still have Iron Sheik versus Hulk Hogan, which, I mean, you know, Sheik needs his rematch, and the people in Philadelphia want to see that rematch, want to see Hulk Hogan abuse the Iron Sheik, quite frankly. Oh, absolutely. And you made a good point. It really gives Slaughter something important to do. I mean, Schultz has already been on TV for a couple of months now. He's been, uh, you know, loudmouth, uh, uh, just beating on the jobbers. And uh, it, it's interesting to finally see him in a competitive match against, you know, Slaughter. So it, it definitely was a match that fans would be wanting to see. All right, we now go to All-American Wrestling on Sunday, July 19th, 1984. I mean, talk about just waving a flag and saying, hey, this is now a throwaway show. They're, they're on national cable, and they're, they're just not maximizing it. I don't get it. They open up with a, a match from 1981. Now, I can see if this was a Hogan match or a Slaughter match. It's Kurt Henning against the now-retired Bulldog Brower. Henning's not even with the promotion, and he was kind of a job guy back then. All, all I can think of in this, in this, uh, as far as why would they air this match, uh, I'm assuming Kurt Henning was probably wrestling in Portland at this time, and he's slowly becoming, he's slowly getting, gaining weight, and he's slowly, very slowly, uh, going to become the Kurt Henning who wins the AWA championship, and uh, you know, years before becoming Mister Perfect. Um, maybe this was just Vince's way of saying, "Hey, this guy's on our radar." You know, when he when he fully develops and fully blooms into the pro he can be, uh, we want him, uh, he's in our sights, we want him to be a part of the team. I, I mean, I, I remember, you know, Kurt Henning is fondly remembered as well he should be, but the 1984 version of Kurt Henning is, is really nothing special, although if you kind of start looking toward the future, then I see what you're saying, I see what you're saying, Steve, you're like, okay, you know, he's not that good now, but he's young, maybe he'll get a lot better. Then we go to, I mean, here's that gang, Roddy Piper, David Schultz, and Paul Orndorff against Eddie Gilbert, S.D. Jones, and Tony Gurria. Nice competitive match on paper. Oh, definitely. And and, and you're right. It is kind of the uh, 
new leaders versus now leaders, kind of a pre-NWO gimmick of uh, Piper, Schultz, and Orndorff, these invading uh, heels, and uh, they're definitely making a name for themselves. Yeah, uh, I mean, they were really kind of an underrated faction when you get when you get down to it, because Piper, oh, they don't have a name. That's why it's not remembered like the Horsemen. Uh, finally, we have a Midgets match, and then... Once again, Eddie Gilbert and Tony Gurria against Mr. Fuji and Tiger Chung Lee. So, I mean, once again, I think what I think should be an important show for the WWF. They are now putting Eddie Gilbert and Tony Gurria on twice. Yeah, um, you know, they're just they're just kind of like the babyface equivalent of Fuji and Chung Lee. Just a, a team that uh, is okay, but definitely not in the championship mix. And those are valuable to have. I mean, you want to, you know, you want to be able to have teams and wrestlers that, okay, if you beat them on television, it means something. It doesn't mean everything, but it means something. So, yeah, we've got some good stuff lined up for you. Uh, we're going to talk about Hulk Hogan's first uh, defense at Madison Square Garden of the WWF Championship. And before we do that, here is a clip. We talked last week about Sergeant Slaughter and the Iron Sheik getting it on on TV. Here's the audio of what occurred. In the corner to my right from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, weighing 222 pounds, here is Ken Jugan. Confusion, confusion in a moment. What's going on? Everyone is standing on their feet. There is a lot of confusion here. Sergeant Slaughter is making his way to the ring. Too sure who is supposed to be facing Mr. Jugan, be it Sergeant Slaughter or the Iron Sheik, but look at that. I don't know what to expect. We saw an altercation last week. Well, now the referee, apparently, it looks like maybe the referee. Oh, look at here. Slaughter and the Iron Sheik. Nose to nose, eyeball to eyeball, and a referee is trying to get in between them. What in the world is going on? A uh, heated debate here. Oh, look out! No, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh. It looked like the Iron Chick was. Oh! There's Slaughter just inviting the Sheik to try it on a chin one time. Slaughter had better watch himself with the Iron Sheik. Apparently, the referee. Is going to escort Slaughter out. Yes, he's he's going out. Mass confusion here this week. I, I don't know who Ken Jugan was to meet in this match, whether it be the Iron Sheik or the this capacity crowd all standing to find out what's going on here. Look at this, each and every one on their feet. Oh, there's still discussion going on between the Iron Sheik and Slaughter. Slaughter. And the Sheik waving that flag, so apparently it was the Sheik who was indeed scheduled to take on Ken Jugan. So we shall see 
the former World Wrestling Federation champion, the Iron Sheik, Pete Kinjugan. What's he saying? Sergeant Slaughter indicates it was not being complimentary at all. But look, Slaughter. Slaughter apparently is going to be watching this match. Slaughter keeping a keen eye on the Iron Sheik. A very keen eye. Freddie Blassie. There definitely, Vince McMahon, is animosity between Sheik Alahani, the Iron Sheik, and Slaughter. Slaughter not about to leave. Well, he's out of range, no doubt of that, but as a spectator looking on now. And the Iron Sheik just about ready to lock up with Ken Jogan. Here we go. Count the hours down, ladies and gentlemen. 8 p.m. tonight, the World Wrestling Federation returning to the Boston Garden. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, Hulkamania definitely will run wild with the incredible Hulk Hogan, the new World Wrestling Federation champion, in the main event defending the title in a Texas death match against the Iron Sheik. You can expect the fur to fly when Hulkamania, the Hulk, meets the Sheik tonight in the Boston Garden. Slaughter still looking on. Listen to this. Listen to the chat. Want Slaughter to think. We want Slaughter and the Sheik is really upset. The Iron Sheik going against Ken Jugan, picking him up. Oh, and over. Nice maneuver by the Iron Sheik too, and he gets his man. Well, shot of Fred Blassie, Iron Sheik victorious. Now, we have Gene Okerlund, and we also have Sergeant Slaughter. All right, Sergeant Slaughter. I am simply bewildered at some of the things that have been happening here over the past couple of weeks. What in the world is going on? Obviously, animosity existing between you and the Iron Chief. I want all you people to listen up to what I have to say. I know that through my military career, and all through my wrestling career, I've called a lot of people maggots. But I can say right here to you people that are here, and the millions of people out there, I can say that Fred Blassie, the American trainer, and the Iron Chief are my man, are the biggest maggots of them all. They're the biggest maggots of them all. And I've had it right up to here. Every time I pick up an American newspaper and see that one of my comrades, one of my people, one of my Marines, one of my boys went down. And now they're after just Americans. They're not even talking about military. Well, let me tell you, Iron Sheik and you American trainer Blassie, governments don't fight. It's the people that fight. It's the people that die. And I'm telling you, Maggot, I want you here if you get the guts next week, all alone, one-on-one, -on -one, to wrestle me right here, right here next week. Oh, what a bombshell! I cannot believe it! 
you to remember, if you accept this match, and one is the slaughter cannon, two is the cobra clutch, three is the cobra core, and last and not least, the one word you hate of all, USA, USA, USA. That's it going to be an unbelievable one-on-one matchup, perhaps one of the greatest of all time. Next week, if it should occur, the Iron Sheik against Sergeant Slaughter, one-on-one. It will be a most memorable occasion indeed. Sergeant Slaughter, front and center. Stay tuned. We'll have more World Wrestling Federation action. All right, we've got a lot to talk about here. First of all, I want to thank my producer, Luke Kippelman, for all the great work he does. This is surviving footage that we are uh, using here. Um, you know, someone had an old VH- VHS tape that someone was me, and we're converting it to DVD. And like I said, we're doing the best we can with the audio. Um, also want to remind everyone that the all the audio we use is for review purposes only. Uh, let me see. Steve, where do I begin? Gene Okerlund, I'm glad I'm older now and I can laugh with Gene Okerlund and at him in a way. But, I mean, he was so over the top and we weren't ready for him. We weren't used to him. What in the world is going on? It's like, <laughs> what does it look like, pal? I think he, uh, when he really hit that high note, I kind of thought he ripped his depends or something, but, uh, <laughs> he was really, uh, he was even, even by his standards, he was really obnoxious on that one. But, uh, but, uh, yeah, Vince did a really superb job of pumping up the angle and, you know, hitting all the right notes, but Oakland was just taking up space, but he was, he was holding the microphone for slaughter. So I guess that part was important. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and Vince is getting more and more like Gene as opposed to the other way around, you know, Oh, Sergeant Slaughter's going to be keeping a keen eye on him. A very keen eye. It's like, <laughs> welcome to wrestling in 1984, where we're kind of going down. Uh, we're in uncharted water, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, he, he's extremely animated, Vince is. I mean, really uh, much different than the old Vince, who is the uh, Howard Cosell uh, type uh, and a very uh, man of few words. Now he's uh, really uh, putting a lot of uh, uh, exaggeration on everything he says. Yeah, um, I, I, I think, you know, Vince did an interview in 1985 when he said he wanted to be the, the Walt Disney of professional wrestling. And I, I think he's already come up with this by 1984. I, I'd agree with that. Absolutely. <laughs> now, there were some loud chants. First, they had the, the We Want Slaughter chant, then the USA, USA chant. I have been in arenas where a chant has gone out. And then, you know, I watch, go back and look at it on television. The audio on television never does the chant justice. If you If you can hear it on TV, trust me, it was deafening when it was happening. I think um, I think part of it too that we have to remember, uh, and this is like an old wrestling thing that uh, you hear a lot among the wrestling hardcore fans. Uh, usually, it's the the hated heel, the heel that people hate, 
that when they eventually see the light and they turn good, those are the ones that really uh, resonate with the fans. And I kind of think that uh, Slaughter is a good example of this. He had been uh, around uh, since, I think, uh, late 1980, uh, on and off, and he was a, a very hated heel against uh, uh, Backlund and against Morales and pretty much everybody on the whole roster. And now he's, uh, uh, you know, going up against uh, the ultimate uh, nemesis, the ultimate uh, uh, villain, uh, Iron Sheik of Iran and Blassie, of course. And uh, and it seems that the fans are just... Uh, dying to cheer for him and dying to root for him because he represents America and the Marines and, uh, and, uh, all, all that's good of mom and apple pie and all those things. So it, it's kind of funny how quickly they, they changed in just the course of a few months. I, I think he got a little sympathy when his manager, uh, grand wizard passed away. And then it seemed, uh, almost like a snowball rolling downhill from that point, uh, just gaining momentum was his popularity. So. I mean, taking us back to what the world was like February 1984, I mean, a few months earlier, uh, the USSR shot down a a commercial flight with like 300 people on it, you know, the United States citizens for the most part. Uh, It was kind of a scary time. I mean, it felt like, you know, there was a chance that we were going to go to war with Russia and that would not have been good for anybody. And, you know, the... 1984 Olympics were coming, and Russia had had you know had announced their intent to boycott them, and it was you know very much people. I think when they're afraid like that, they they kind of cling to patriotism. So you have, like you said, Sergeant Slaughter. He's billed as a Marine. He you know stands up for his country. I mean, by this point, coming actually coming into this point, I think people really wanted to cheer for him. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point, uh, there was a movie, Red Dawn, about a bunch of uh, teenagers that stood up against the uh, Russians or something to that effect. And I know um, uh, Slaughter has has mentioned on a couple of interviews that uh, it was around this time, supposedly, the story goes, he said that he got stuck on an elevator or an elevator ride with uh, former President Richard Nixon. And Richard Nixon supposedly told him, you know, I really like what you're doing, and uh, you know, it's really important what you're doing, and and I and I guess uh, I think Nixon could see the cathartic um, aspect of uh, what, what Slaughter was doing for the American people, as far as uh, you know, showing you know the strength of uh, America, the fearlessness of America, and the, of course, the Sheik represented the. Uh, sneaky, uh, uh, untrustworthy, treacherous, uh, Iranian stereotype. So, but, uh, but uh, Slaughter uh, really uh, acted like that really meant something to him. And I guess it really happened. So it's kind of an interesting story. It really was. And I think, you know, no matter what, uh, I think this was the plan from, from jump. They were going to bring in Iron Cheek and have him feud with Sergeant Slaughter and really, it was as organic a feud as there could be, and Sergeant Slaughter, you know, he's finally a babyface. And, and it's interesting, too, that uh, as far as their backgrounds go, uh, you know, uh, Khosra Vaziri uh, began his pro wrestling experience working in Bernganya's camp and was uh, a trainer and, uh, and and learned pro wrestling through Bernganya. And I guess Sergeant Slaughter basically learned, and uh, I don't know if it was the same camp that Vaziri was in, but one of those early camps. Now, here they are later. They're both really solid pro wrestlers. They both had 
uh, lots of success on their own over a number of years. And now here they are for the first time engaged in a major feud with each other. And it really resonated on the East Coast. And, uh, and since we're talking about the national expansion, it, it resonated throughout the country as well. Yeah, and, you know, he's originally from Iran. He's, he's legit from Iran. And in 1979, you know, there was a, a severe shift in Iran where, you know, we were, the United States was buddies with the Shah. Well, the Shah is gone and the new government hates the United States. They took hostages from the United States. This is five, less than five years before this angle. And believe me, Iran was not a very uh, popular place with people in the early 80s. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, the, uh, one of the most popular TV shows of that time frame was uh, Nightline with Ted Koppel. And, and that show, uh, which eventually became kind of a news magazine, like an Oprah Winfrey or Phil Donahue type show, it originally began as a you know, what's going on with our hostages every night, like a daily yep. update on the hostages. So it, it was definitely a time of paranoia and fear. And uh, pro wrestling, of course, does the what it always does, takes advantage of what's going on in the world and uh, played it up to a new extreme with Sergeant Slaughter versus the Iron Sheik. Of course, pro wrestling has to take everything everything to the extreme. That's one reason we love it. All right, a little <laughs> more audio for you guys. Here are promos uh, leading up to a Boston Garden show that we spoke about last week. This is it, and tonight is the night at the Boston Garden, 8 o'clock start. Fantastic professional wrestling card that includes six-man tag team action and two world title bouts. Hulk Hogan, brand new World Wrestling Federation champion, Texas Deathmatch. Coming out of the chute, the Iron Sheik. And this is going to be happening just hours from now here in town and still plenty of good seats available. You know something, Mean Tonight is the night I get in the ring with that Sheik. But you know something? I'm so wired up. I'm walking that fine razor's edge and I'm ready for this, man. I feel like I could spit lightning and crap thunder. And the thing is, I feel sorry for this man. You know, he's been out here knocking me, my country, and all the things that have gone down. And the thing is, when I get him in the ring, a Texas death match, anything goes, I can beat him to death with a world heavyweight title, if that's what it takes. But there's no way in the world, no man alive, even you, Sheik, that's going to take this belt away from me and the great United States of America. A Texas death match. That's Katie Barr that or it means absolutely anything and everything goes. And you know something? I can take this man all night long. I don't have to stop at the curfew. They can turn out the lights. We can continue all night long, Mean Gene. I might even pick you up and beat the man to death with your body. It doesn't matter what happens. But the thing is, Sheik, this time you've been off more you can chew. I don't get off. I'm putting the world heavyweight title on the line in a Texas death match. But I'm a fighting champion and Hulkamania is running wild and it's going to be all over you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, they call the movement behind this big man, the brand-new champion of the world, Hulk Hogan, Hulkamania, and indeed here in Boston, it is running wild. Captain Lou Albano, the magnificent one, Don Morocco. Tonight, Intercontinental Title Defense, it's a rematch, and Tito Santana is the challenge. May I tell you this, Gene, whatever your name is, Mean Gene, Mr. TV Personality, I was there at the last encounter filming the match in entirety. And I have proof on that 90172 camera, that 57,000 big ones that it cost me, that Tito Santana used a foreign object on my man, on Don Morocco, busting him wide open. Now it's a matter of, of, of revenge. It's a matter of precedent. It's a matter of showing you, Tito Santana, 
that Magnificent Morocco is truly your master, your superior, the champion, international champion, Don Morocco. I'll be there filming in entirety, watching, witnessing your Thank execution. You. What was the model number on that camera? 90172. Cost me 57,000 biglets, brother. That's what I, I can have a 15-second replay at any time. Got it, Jack? That's what I thought. Got it, said. Mr. TV person? Rebarbative, I guess, the best word to describe Captain Lou Albano. Come on in, if you would. Tony Atlas, Rocky Johnson in town tonight, gentlemen. Six-man tag team action. The trio of Fuji, Tiger Chung Lee, and Sergeant Slaughter to meet Andre the Giant, Tony Atlas, and The Rock, Rocky Johnson. That's right, I'll say what, our hands are going to be full, it's not going to be any easy match by no long run, but I want to say this, I got my partner Tony Atlas, and not only that, I got the biggest man in professional wrestling, 7 foot 5, 450 some pounds, and brother, when you got a man like that on your side, what can I tell you, Gina, what can I tell them people, brother, because I know the giant, and I knew him for many years, brother, and he's all hurt, and he goes over there like us with one thing in mind and that's the win Andre the Giant you, you wanted that I never lost a match and I come here to win but just like you say we go off our irons full but don't worry I got a big ends I thank you very very much gentlemen indeed by the way tonight the big one at eight o'clock and of course that's Texas right death match. I listen to Hulk Hogan out here you know and he's boarding right on the edge the man he's running wild He's talking about he's going to do this, he's going to do that, and he's got all the people behind him. Let me tell you something, Hulk Hogan. This is our type of match. I'm not an eye for an eye manager. I demand both of them, and I told a sheik, they're going to have to kill you before I concede. Right, Valley Valley? I hope you American people in the Boston Garden, you have enough gasoline to you put into your car, and then you come in the Boston Garden. Tonight, tonight, I hope you have enough gas. Do you come in the ring, Hogan? Hogan, I'm already excited about that match. Yeah. Ayatollah, tell me, shake, beat him, touch the belt, come to the Tehran, Iran. Well, emotions are running very, very high. Tonight is the big one at the Boston Garden. A sensational card with two world title bouts. One you won't want to miss. Once again, all audio is for review purposes only. That was a wild three or four minutes. Hulk Hogan, crapping thunder, Steve. Yeah, <laughs> what really got me was, I think if you listen closely, Lou Albano said that uh, uh, Tito Santana, we're going to execute you tonight. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, you heard a little bit of everything in this interview from all all, uh, all people involved. I'm glad Gene Orkelin got the uh, the the what was it the number the the model number of Lou Albano's camera that was actually very funny. It, it was and uh, and Blassie Blassie with his bally bally. I mean, it just he's he's just too much. He's he's ridiculous. He's over the top. I, Hogan was so over the top, and and I look back and I loved it. I mean, Bob Backlund provided many great memories for us, uh, but. I mean, Hogan just blew his doors off. Bob would just, you know, kind of come out and look at the floor and speak very softly, almost no matter what. Uh, sometimes Arnold Skolin would go out and do the same on his behalf. And Hogan, now we have this wild man who just came in and took over. Yeah, when you look back at the history now, I mean, it's been so long. And I mean, we're talking about ancient history right now ourselves. But yes. uh, the WWF uh, started in 1963. 
we had uh, Bruno San Martino was champion for seven years. He took a little break, came back, was champion for another three or four years. And then we had Bob Backlund for a six-year stretch. And we had Hulk Hogan beginning this stretch. And, uh, you know, it, looking back on all that now, I mean, um, the Bruno era stood out because Bruno was this, you know, uh, people's champion, larger than life, but uh, kind of like the the neighbor next door, the, the, the homegrown uh, local commodity, uh, uh, you know, really the American dream story of the, you know, foreigner comes to the United States and becomes an all-American hero. And 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 Backlund really uh, was just so uh, milk toasty, so kind of bland. I mean, his it was almost a good thing to have someone in the middle like that to make Hogan seem more colorful, more explosive when he finally arrived. And uh, I think I think all that blandness of Backlund really makes uh, Hogan's colors and his. Uh, loudness and his brashness even more brash and even more colorful if if that's uh if that could be uh if we could put it into words no i thought i thought it made a a really good contrast between the two let me ask you something steve now, what in your opinion what do you think they were doing with bob backland after this like do you I mean, like i don't know it it seemed like they took a, a wait-and-see attitude with it. Like, were they going to make him kind of the number two guy or just, you know, someone else on the babyface roster? I mean, even by this point, Slaughter had passed Backlund, and probably so did Jimmy Snuka, but Backlund was still going to get main events in Madison Square Garden and in Boston. Well, I, I kind of think that Vince didn't really have a plan with him. Um, you know, the, the urban legend has been, and this goes all the way back to the uh, – Hulk Hogan on the cover of Sports Illustrated article that at some point, I don't know when it was, it was in 84 or later, or even maybe even before he lost the title. Um, at some point, Vince supposedly went to Backlund and said, you know, we want to, we want to turn you into a heel. We want you to dye your hair green. We want you to do this and do that. And, you know, it's become an urgent urban legend. I don't know how much of it is true, but um, I, you know, one one thing that is certain, I mean, uh, compared to say when Bruno was the living legend to Backlund as champion, or later on when Warrior was champion, and they deemed Hulk Hogan the immortal Hulk Hogan, and he was kind of in that Babe Ruth Bruno position. Um, they weren't grooming Backlund for that because otherwise they'd been calling Backlund something like the uh, semi-immortal Bob Backlund or something like that. But uh, um, so I think what they're doing here with him, you know, they're they're going to be dabbling with him, teaming up with B. Brian Blair and uh, other partners, and even just him wrestling guys in prelims. Uh, and eventually he gets phased out, but you can just tell that. Barring him turning heel one way or another, they're just not going to do anything with him. I mean, my theory has always been that Vince McMahon just basically he knew Bob Backlund was not going to turn heel. Um, he just knew it. And mm -hmm. instead of firing him, he's like, Bob, turn heel or leave. And he left. That, that's always been my theory. I'm trying to remember in Bob's book if he said that he was asked to dye his hair green. I know in the book he said he was asked to turn heel and he just wouldn't do it. You know Backlund's not going to dye his hair green, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that that sounds like they really wanted to, if, if there was any truth to that at all, I mean, it sounds like they had kind of a goofy angle for him, but 
Uh, but, but, but I think what you said is right. I, I think that they just realized that his time had come and gone. It, it, it really wasn't a role for him in the WWF. He was too young to retire. Um, technically, he was still pretty close to his prime. And, and I think Vince knew, you know, as far as Vince's business goes, it would be best for Vince's business if another promotion took him on. And especially really good if another promotion took him on and featured him in a major way, because I think Vince knew that that style of wrestling, that style of uh, being the uh, strong but silent uh, good guy, uh, the the modest, uh, uh, no frills good guy, that that was had really flew the coop, and um, people wanted to see brash, larger than life superstars going forward. Yeah, Bob only had about six months left in the company, and I just remember, you know, I didn't know anything about the wrestling business in 1985, 1986, but I was like, you know, why isn't Bob Backlund, you know, on on WTBS wrestling for JCP, or why isn't he wrestling in Bill Watts' promotion? You know, why isn't he doing something big? He was just a WWF champion, and I didn't realize that the business had more or less passed him by. But anyway, I used to, I used to look at wrestling as kind of a shoot. If you are the WWF World's Champion, you obviously must be good at it, good enough so that you know you don't just disappear onto an indie indie shows a couple of years later. But that's not how it worked for Bob. I, I kind of think with him, he had a unique situation. He had made uh, a really good uh, living for a few years as WWF champion, and made he, he must have made probably in the range of two to three hundred thousand a year in his years as champion. And he's he's a real frugal guy, as we know. Uh, he he wasn't spending that money; he kept that money. And uh, so he, what where his interest lied was instead of being on the road like he was uh, as champion, uh, you know, three hundred plus days a year. He wanted to be at home with his family, see his little girl grow up, and uh, uh, and and, uh, and live on the Northeast and, and be there as a dad. And and even though he would dabble a little bit with Pro Wrestling USA the following year and a little bit of the AWA, I think he realized that uh, he could walk away from Pro Wrestling, give his uh, family a normal life, so to speak, and, and continue on because... He had uh, saved his money, and he went into his, his own businesses uh, as the years progressed. I I agree with what you said because that is true about Bob. He didn't you know he didn't throw money around. He bought a house for his family in Connecticut, lived rather modestly, and saved his money. And my understanding is, you know, he was asking. I don't know exactly what he was asking to for to do shows, but supposedly he it priced himself out of the business. It was like four or five thousand dollars a show. Anyway, let's talk about the Madison Square Garden show that took place on February 20th, 1984. Um, Hulk Hogan's first title defense, 26,092 people, which includes 4,000 at the Felt Forum, people paying to watch it on TV. To say the least, the WWF was red hot at this point, and Hulk Hogan was red hot. Oh, yeah. And and as we said on the last uh, couple of episodes of our show, um, you know, after the big win against Iron Sheik, uh, he went to uh, Japan and and uh, really had his first defense over there. But he teamed up a lot with Iron Mike Sharp, of all people, in uh, some uh, tag team tournament stuff. And then he came back. And uh, so here he is against Orndorff. There really wasn't much of any build up to this match. Um, you know, had Backlund been champion, he probably would have faced Orndorff right about this time, I'd say. On this night, I believe. 
Yeah, I, I think that's how it worked out. So, you know, you kind of look at wrestling as somewhat legit. Uh, you know, Orndorff remained a top uh, challenger, and, and now he's facing Hogan. And um, I, I, I kind of think that, that uh, maybe one of the reasons why they had this match so quickly without any kind of a buildup or an angle, part of it, I think, was, you know, Hogan and Orndorff are both from Tampa, um, they both knew each other fairly well, uh, kind of growing up uh, around the same time in wrestling together and maturing as wrestling performers. And, you know, from watching the match, I mean, it, it, they really had a good chemistry together, but uh, uh, it definitely wasn't like your typical Hulk Hogan formatted match. It, you know, we hadn't gotten that far with his kind of like patented routines. Uh, what did you think of the match, John? Well, I, I, th- I thought it was a really good match, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, I'll tell you what, let's go over the whole show. Let, and Steve, let me apologize to you because, you know, I, I know you didn't get to see all of this show, and we're not going to let that happen again. I tried to get a file from a DVD converted, and normally this is no big deal for me to do, just convert and send it to Steve, and all of a sudden it's not working, but I'm glad you got to see some of the show. One other thing I wanted to talk about, Gorilla Monsoon and Pat Patterson are doing commentary, and I thought both of them were fine as, you know, uh, not announcers, but, you know, the co-announcer, but, like, as the lead guy, Gorilla Monsoon, I thought left a lot to be desired. That's funny. I, I kind of felt just the opposite. I thought Monsoon was okay, and, and Patterson, ah. Patterson was just, like, I mean, he was just, like, talking, but... You know, nothing, it seemed like nothing that he was saying was really adding much, but that you can say that probably about any WWF color commentator of the mid, mid to late 80s. Yeah, that's true. No, I, I thought they were both good as fine as color commentators, but I thought we needed someone else carrying the ball. Like, Gorilla just seemed out of place. Jose Luis Rivera, his big unexplainable push continues as he beats Charlie Fulton with a small package. It was a good enough match. Charlie Fulton was a good worker. Um, he let, let him get his stuff in and the, the match was fine for an opener. I kind of think the reason why that Jose Luis or Mac Rivera got a push, he's a younger Spanish guy. I think the WWF, uh, really embraced, uh, you know, the ethnicity and, and pushing wrestlers of different ethnic types, especially in big, uh, you know, uh, multicultural centers like MSG. Uh, that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, Charlie Fulton, I think he's really, it was really an underrated wrestler. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I never heard him talk in any territory or uh, never seen him do any interviews, but it, it would have been interesting to see uh, if he had been given a role in a, maybe, maybe even a different promotion, what he could really have done. You know, this dawns on me. Charlie Fulton coming into the WWF in 1981 is a lot like Jose Luis Rivera's push right now. Fulton got, when he first came in, he got two or three, maybe four wins on television, and then he immediately descended into a jobber's role. And that's what we're about to see happen with Jose Luis Rivera. Steve, I agree with you that, um, you know, it's, it's definitely good to push Hispanics in areas like, you know, New York, Philadelphia, all throughout the Northeast. I'm just questioning why they picked Jose Luis as the guy. Yeah, he, he kind of seemed like a guy with two left feet. He really did. Uh, I mean, he, he was uh, larger than a, a typical uh, pro- younger preliminary guy, uh, but didn't really have any really uh, remarkable ring skills or, or anything else that was really marketable about him. No, and like I said, the whole thing is is bewildering years and years later. Um, Next match, 
Iron Mike Sharp beats Brian Blair, 935, using his foot on the ropes for leverage. In this match, Brian Blair looked, I, I've never noticed this about Brian Blair until I watched the, this match recently to pre- prepare for the show. Blair was, what's the word I'm looking for? He looked blown up. Blair looked like he was definitely taking his vitamins at this point. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, you know, it, it, like you say, it's his MSG debut. Uh, maybe just the coming out and seeing the uh, the awe and wonder of 26,000 fans. Uh, I mean, I, I think that would take my breath away, too. Uh, he's used to the Sportatorium in Tampa. No offense, Barry Rose, if you're listening. But, uh, you know, I think the Garden uh, could do that to somebody. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, B. Brian Blair has kind of an aborted run here uh, in WWF. He goes away for a little while you know, later this year and then comes back uh, maybe in about six months to a year and forms the tag team with uh, uh, Jim Bronzel. But uh, here he loses to... Uh, Iron Mike Sharp, who, you know, he just came off the tag team with Hulk Hogan in Japan. Maybe they wanted to, uh, you know, give Mike a win here and there and continue to push him just a little bit. Yeah, and it's funny because Iron Mike Sharp did kind of the same thing that Blair did. He left the WWF for a while in late 84, I want to say fall 1984, and he was back not long after uh, basically doing doing not well, I don't want to say nothing but jobs, but he was definitely, uh, they had no problems having Iron Mike Sharp go on TV and lose cleanly. Yeah, I I don't think I've told this story before, but uh, um, I remember one time going to, a, I think it was a TV taping for WWF in Binghamton, and um, me and my wrestling buddy Dave were, were approaching the building, and, and the, the building is just packed, and, and there's tractor trailers and cars and rental cars all over the place, and we see this one teeny, teeny car. It looked like, uh, like kind of like a mid-80s version of a smart car, you know, like like a VW Bug or something that was going around in circles. And we look inside, and it's Iron Mike Sharp. And, you, you know, Mike Sharp, who's like six foot six or six foot seven, you imagine him in a smart car. It's like he didn't know where to park. He didn't know where to get off. It was just kind of a hilarious situation. Mike Mike Sharp was said to be a really interesting guy, and I could I could see him driving around in a Chevette or something like that. <laughs> this this match the match was okay. They had one of the worst finishes I've ever seen, where Iron Mike Sharp uses the ropes as leverage to pin Brian Blair. There was no way the ref could have missed it. It was right in his line of sight, and he just continued to count one, two, three, and Brian Blair, his shoulders weren't even down. The match was okay, but that that finish was was terrible. (laughs) Yeah, that was one of the matches I didn't have access to, but uh, I don't mind missing that match, honestly. Uh, I was going to say, you you, you did not miss much. (laughs) Next up. Afa from the team of the Samoans uh, versus Tony Gurria. Uh, it occurred to me that we had two multiple-time t- uh, WWF Tag Team Champions going at it. But this card, it, this match is just card filler at this point. I, I mean, Gurria really is card filler at this point when he... My understanding was he was very popular when he first arrived in the WWF in 1974 and 1975, and his push is just over here. And really, I I think they could have done a little bit more with him. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, he, he never changed. He always had the same look, the same gear, the same uh, you know, the same smile on his face. Uh, you know, he never aged. Uh, but uh, you know, he's going up against Alpha here. 
And, you know, Alpha, you know, again, another guy who's been in the WWF since 1980, and he's huge. And, uh, you know, they are going to do something with the Samoans. So I, I can see why he went over to Korea in this match. Tony Gurria, every every two or three weeks, went to his barber, and they kept giving him that Don King haircut. <laughs> this was an extremely slow plotting match, even by WWF standards. Is, is this one of the ones you missed? Thankfully, I missed that one. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, don't go looking for it. This was <laughs> it was by WWF standards, not good. Next up is the Iron Sheik defeats Eddie Gilbert via submission with the Camel Clutch at five forty eight. Uh, Steve, I don't know if you saw this one. It was a good match. Uh, maybe they needed a better opponent to kind of fatten Iron Sheik up before his his feud with Slaughter, which was in every, you know, which was going to be starting very soon. Um, Eddie Gilbert just w- wasn't booked as a star at this point in his career. He was even further down down the card than Eddie Gilbert. Uh, t- Tony Gurria, excuse me. I'd say Eddie Gilbert uh, probably wasn't even at the level of, say, Quick Draw, Rick McGraw at this point. At least Rick McGraw had a little fire, and he, he was on the juice, so he was a little bit pumped up. Um, you know, somehow Eddie, uh, Eddie really miraculously transformed himself to become a, you know, a big heel in the UWF a couple of years later. I don't know what happened to him in the next couple of years to uh, go from this meek and mild uh, Eddie Gilbert into this great uh, loudmouth uh, heel manager with his little uh, faction that he had in the UWF. Uh, he was very effective over there. But, uh, but but here in WWF, he's just like white bread. He's just boring. And, uh, and, uh, and Sheik made short work of him in this match. Yeah, Eddie Gilbert, later this year, he left the WWF and went back to the Memphis promotion and became part of the new Fabulous Ones tag team with Tommy Rich, which was, it's not a fondly remembered team, but they were actually pretty good in the ring. I thought Tommy Rich playing the role of a Fabulous One at that point, I I still still saw him as a single star, so I I thought him being in a tag team in Memphis with Eddie Gilbert was, you know, certainly beneath his level of talent. Little did I know, little was I realizing that Tommy Rich's stock was was falling quickly but yeah eddie gilbert i mean that was an amazing transformation for him yeah you know it um it, it harkens back to the uh you know mid-70s when kevin sullivan was this really clean cut to all american baby face in the wwf uh you know he would be in the opening match at msg when bruno was champion and and uh, he had you know all these you know great matches great matches on tv as a you know this young strong guy from boston and clean cut you know all american looking and you know I, I did take a little hiatus from wrestling in the early 80s i'm at the drugstore and i see a wrestling magazine i pick it up you know it's it's kevin sullivan with with paint on his face he's a devil worshiping guy going against dusty Rhodes, and it's like what did i miss where where have i been and uh so these things happen in wrestling Yes, they do. I remember picking up a, a magazine in 1980 and seeing that Kevin Sullivan was now high up on the car, teaming with Stan Hansen in Georgia. And I was like, wait a minute, I, I've seen Kevin Sullivan. I guess Ken Patera really didn't end his career with the swinging <laughs> neck breaker. But, I mean, I just didn't see him as a top guy, and he turned himself into that, and, and good for him. By the way, Kevin is not from Lexington. He, he, excuse me, he's not from Boston. He's from Lexington, Mass., which is like a major, major money part of Metro Boston. Okay, well, that's that's how he could afford to be the uh, 
the head guy in charge of these these crazy factions. <laughs> With Buzz Sawyer and uh, Molokai walking and and what's his name? Mark Lewin walking out of the ocean and becoming the Purple A's. All right. Next up, <laughs> Roddy Piper and Dr. D. David Schultz defeat the Invaders when Piper pinned Invader number two after Schultz hit an elbow drop from the middle turnbuckle behind the referee's back. Basically, Piper and, and Schultz cheated their way to victory. The Invaders watching this match, number one, Roddy Piper, not the biggest wrestler out there. Big guy if you see him walking down the street. Schultz is a big guy, but the Invaders are tiny. Like I'm looking back, I'm really surprised that Vince McMahon picked them to come in and win the tag team championships, which never happened. Probably, probably, I don't know, probably because they just changed the formula. Yeah, they they um, like you say. I think that they were for a time uh, on the books probably to win the title, but they probably realized just how small they were. And and I don't think that the fans really, although they got cheered at, at times, uh, I don't think the fans really took to them like say uh, the way uh, fans got excited like during, during those those rare uh, Tiger Mask matches at MSG or or when Maskers wrestled. It wasn't like a pop like oh my god we gotta see these guys again i think it was like oh uh, the, you know these are obviously two young guys and they're improving and they're working hard and blah 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 but i don't think i don't think they're really caught on with the audience at all now they i can i can speak for myself and the people that i watched wrestling with and went to wrestling with that no one was into these guys and and you know I just couldn't imagine. I mean, the Samoans are huge, and these guys are going to beat, you know, I was like, wow, they're really going to have these guys beat the Samoans, but that's not what happened. Let's talk a little, little bit about Roddy Piper. On February 20th, 1984, when, you know, this is when this match happened, like, I already knew, I knew who Roddy Piper was from the magazines, had seen him a little bit in Georgia as a babyface, and well, both as a heel and a baby face, but now he's in the WWF. And by this time, I could tell, like, this was going to be something special, like really special with this guy. Yeah, I remember watching every every week on the syndicated show when he was hosting Piper's Pit. And, uh, you know, as you know, I mean, you watched wrestling in the same time period I did. I mean... Um, the, the matches, for the most part, were very forgettable. You'd have a few good interviews, and then the show was over with. But Piper's Pit gave each show a little bit of a spark, a little bit of a something. It was much more memorable than most of the things you would normally see. And I had friends that uh, didn't really watch wrestling as much as I did or didn't even really like wrestling. But uh, when they kind of caught into Roddy Piper and found out who he was, I mean, he made people that didn't like wrestling watch wrestling just to see what he'd have to say. And uh, uh, I think that's why um, a lot of this really uh, caught the mainstream attention. Um, yeah, sure, we'd have the big angle with Cindy Lauper coming up, and there were things to make it worthwhile for new fans to get involved. But Roddy Piper was just such an unusual personality. Uh, uh, he really caught on like wildfire. He did. He came across as a guy who... I mean, even at this time, like, this guy is going to surpass, like, guys like Morocco and Valentine as the biggest heel uh, I've ever seen in the WWF, and, and he went out and did it. Yeah, and, and I think um, 
I, I think what's cool about his story is, uh, you know, as you said earlier, he's not the biggest guy in the world. And, and it wasn't like he had a special move or a deadly move, like, say, the DDT with Jake or some other wrestler's deadly uh, move. Uh, he just was just uh, very believable as far as, like, him coming in the ring. Uh, he always tried to almost portray himself like an old-time boxer uh uh, more legitimate, like a boxer fighter rather than a wrestler fighter, and uh, but he took everything very seriously in the ring, and uh, and his you know completely obnoxious personality is the host of Piper's Pit, and of course doing TV interviews for matches, people wanted to see him get his ass kicked, and it was really uh, you know a, a, a easy for the fans to say you know I I can't wait to see Hulk Hogan beat whoever he's wrestling. I can't wait to see so-and-so pound on Ronnie Piper because I hate him. So those things were really uh, huge in selling tickets for WWF at the time. I mean, I loved Roddy Piper. I found him to be so funny, so crazy, so entertaining. I mean, he was quickly becoming my all-time favorite wrestler by this point. Ric Flair is my all-time favorite, but Roddy Piper's on the, the next tier down. Next match is new Intercontinental Champion Tito Santana defeating Don Morocco via countout when Morocco had his head tripped in the ring, trapped in the ring ropes after Santana hit the champion with a flying forearm. Steve did you get to see this one? This one I did not get to see, unfortunately. The the the, the finish was hilarious. Morocco, his his head is caught in the ropes, so in theory the ropes are wrapped tightly around his throat, and the referee just gets in his face and starts counting one, two, three. <laughs> like, don't even think about helping this guy. It was too much. Morocco is really heavy here. And this was a slow-paced match. It was not a very good match. It was better than the Boston match, I remembered. But I've had people tell me over the years, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, I was there for Santana beating Morocco in Boston. It was an awful match. And I've had people say, no way, those guys were, were too good. And to me, the last two Madison Square Garden matches are I don't want to say proof that I'm right, but certainly an indicator that I'm right. This was not a very good match at all. Very slow-paced. I, I just think, and I've, I've said this on one of our recent shows, I just think that the, the touring schedule that the WWF had Morocco on was, it was pretty wild. I mean, they were in California for a day or two and then back to New York and then to Ohio. And, and they were really starting that whole national thing. And, and as I said on probably the last show, the whole uh, war with Snuka, uh, I don't think either man was the same after that. I think it took a lot out of both of them. And I kind of think Morocco at this point going up against Santana, who is young and fresh and had just come from a really uh, meaningless uh, tour of the uh, of Georgia. Uh, you know, it, Tito's full of uh, vim and vigor and he's ready to do a number on Morocco. And Morocco has nothing left in the tank. I mean, he, he's uh, got the reputation. He's got the... You know the the the, the great talking and and some great villainous uh, uh, healed them going on, but other than that, he he's spent. He's just ex- exhausted. So I can see why uh, Tito really probably stood out much more in this match. You know, I want to do this every show. I a lot of the materials we use are from the history of of WWE dot com website. It's just all one word: history of WWE. And I want to thank Graham Cawthon and Richard Land for all the great work they've done because I was able to research something. 
looking back, remembering, I'm like, okay, Morocco left after this and came back like fall towards the end of the year with Mr. Fuji as his manager. He never really went away. He just kind of was off TV for a while, but he was wrestling at the arenas. Yeah, it was, um, you know, this is really definitely a part of the national expansion. It wasn't like the old days where, you know, you'd send a, a Morocco to Georgia or send him to another territory and he would do his thing there and come back. I, I think Vince knew that he wanted guys like Morocco and we'll use Greg Valentine as another example. He wanted him on his roster and, and he'd use him as, as he saw fit. And uh, pretty soon Morocco was going to be sent home and go and surf the waves and <laughs> do his surfing and see his family. And I think the next, uh, major time you would see him was for the calendar for the end of the year uh, for the 1985 WWF calendar. They showed some uh, promos of him on a surfboard, and uh, that was kind of the first uh, inkling that Morocco would be back on the scene before you know it. Yeah, he left for a couple of months, and that's it. And then you know we'll get more into this when it happens. But you know, Mr. Fuji uh, transforms from a wrestler to a manager and becomes Morocco's Morocco's manager. And those two supposedly were very close. But anyway, next match: Andre the Giant against the Masked Superstar. Uh, Andre wins with a splash and seven forty six. One observation I made is Masked Superstar was a huge guy. And he was still dwarfed by Andre the Giant at this point. Andre was so big. Now, this was one of the matches I was able to see. Uh, I, I, apparently, someone had, uh, it, apparently, it appeared on one of the old Coliseum videos, and someone put it on YouTube or Daily Motion. I can't remember which. But, uh, but, but you're, you're very right about that. And, but I will say about Bill Eady, he looks so big here. I mean, so jacked up. Uh, I'm really on the juice here. Um, I, I, I'm just imagining that between the time that he is here in you know in early 1984, and by the time he returns, uh, either as a machine or the time he began was acts of demolition, and uh, later in uh, I guess early '87, um, he, he definitely appears smaller. I mean, as far as like not as as heavily on the juice. But uh, this match with Andre was, was kind of like your typical Andre match from the past. Mostly comedy, mostly uh, just comedic spots. Uh, there is a brief time where E.D. Takes, uh, gets controlled and pounds on Andre a bit, but it doesn't last long. And, uh, you know, it, it's okay for what it is, I guess. I mean, in my notes, classic Andre match where he ragdolls his opponent. <laughs> That's pretty much what, what happens here. Uh, Billy is not going to be with the WWF for very much longer. But, I mean, he did a really good job here. Andre, by this point, was pretty immobile. And Andre is either just standing there or laying down. And Edie's doing all the work. But it was, it was, it was a decent match. It, it was, yeah, you're correct. Edie did a lot of bump taking and moving around. And uh, and I've seen many uh, shoot interviews with Bill Edie, and he basically said that, uh, you know, that Andre was one of his, you know, close friends in wrestling, and he loved helping Andre, loved uh, working with him and doing jobs, obviously. So uh, it must have been easy to do it for his friend Andre. Ah, oh, okay, I did not realize they were close. Um. Hulk Hogan defeats Paul Orndorff via countout when Hogan backdropped Orndorff over the top rope to the floor. You know, I, I guess I compared it, and I want to hear what you think, John. I, I Comparing it to their later matches when they had their great feud in 86, it, it to me, it, this match is, is uh, 
a very good match, but it, it it's different in that you know there's not really much heat involved because it it's still it's not like a, there's no, no feud or angle to get it you know kick started. Uh, the fans were into it, no doubt about it. But when they had their great feud the following year in the summer and fall of '86, um, the the heat was just off the charts, and the the, the crowds were just uh, incredible crowds, and uh, and they just had their routine down. So Pat is here. It's like here it's like seeing like a, a a Broadway hit on opening night compare it to like a Broadway hit like in its second year. It's like a different type of a comparison. Yeah, and you know, this is a, a, a difficult match to book, in my opinion, because, I mean, Hulk Hogan has to go over. Right. At the same time, you have to protect Paul Orndorff. He's still new. So th- they did a thing where Hogan just backdropped him over the top rope and he was counted out. I've always wondered, as a wrestling fan, like why pinfalls are so much better to a fan or so much more valuable, that win is so much more valuable than a countout. I mean, Hogan rendered Orndorff unable to continue. So to me, it's a clean, it's a clean win. I, I thought this was a, a, this great storytelling in the match because uh, Orndorff had hit him with everything but the kitchen sink. He hit him with a flying knee to the face. He uh, hit him with a drop kick. He hit him with a backbreaker. They did uh, uh, right in the center of the ring, uh, Orndorff pile drove him. But uh, the announcers pointed out that uh, rather than try to, you know, hook the leg and pin him one, two, three, Orndorff had to go and, uh, you know, mock Hogan and, and pose the crowd for about a minute or so. And by the time Orndorff got on top of him, uh, Hogan powered up and just like popped him right off at a, you know, the count of two. So, you know, as far as the storytelling, it was very, uh, very interesting. And, and then it looked again like, you know, Orndorff's going to power drive him for a second time. But that's when he he powered up and Hogan backdropped him over the top and and and, and you're right it was it was a compelling end of the match uh, you felt like Hogan had escaped with a win but a very tough win over a very tough opponent and Orndorff was injured and uh, you could tell that both of them kind of wanted to get it on again after the match but they quickly went to the back and uh, and again kind of like this Spectrum show that we recently talked about. It wasn't your typical Hogan thing where they crank up the music at the end and they they uh, do a huge posing routine. They did put the music back on. The people were really into that, but uh, Hogan just uh, basically waved and left left the ring area. So so uh, it, it had not yet gotten to the whole posing routine uh, quite yet. Not yet. I mean, this is this to me. This is really. An interesting topic in general because we're talking the earliest WWF version of Hulkamania. One little side thing, back in the late 80s, late 80s, early 90s, let's call it, there was a trainer around here who told, and he, you know, I'm not going to name him, but he had a pretty, I don't know, a pretty decent school. He would tell the wrestlers that work rate did not matter. <laughs> Hulk Hogan is the worst wrestler of all time. And doesn't that prove his point? That, that, that's ridiculous. In, in 84, Hogan, I'm not going to say he was Ric Flair, but he was definitely above average. You know, and, and it's funny how, um, how history changes things. Um, you know, I got the Observer back issues. And, uh, you know, in those early 80s, yeah, issues of the Observer. Hulk Hogan was actually fairly highly rated wrestler. He'd be probably in the top thirty or so. Uh, but around this time, the WWF—well, uh, I'll say the Meltzer readers, the fans of the Observer, 
really hated the WWF. And I don't know if it was because Dave was maybe kind of against them or it seemed like he was at the time. But they, uh, the, the readers of The Observer felt Hogan was just terrible and his work had really dropped off the charts. You know, I, I think Hulk Hogan is a very smart worker in the ring. I mean, when he, when he has to wrestle, he does wrestle like we talked about the match with the Great Muda in Japan. I mean, when he needs to turn it on, he turns it on. But he knows how to work New York. He knows how to work certain cities. He knows when to brawl. He, he knows that people want to see the brawling. They don't want to see a ton of wrestling, honestly. They want to see the brawling and, and the stuff. Uh, so uh, I think he really knew how to read his audience is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I have read old observers from like 83, 84, and everyone just hates the WWF, and it's because, you know, it, it really was not a work-oriented promotion like, you know, Mid-South or Florida. It was it was all about show – it was mostly about showmanship. Let me put it that way. Next up, we have Jimmy Snuka pinning – Samoan Samu in 9.32 with a crossbody off the top rope. My reaction to this in 1984 would have been, oh my god, another Jimmy Snooker versus one of the Samoans matches in some shape or form. I mean, they, I thought they really ran that into the ground. Yeah, well, I think um, this was kind of a period where I think Jimmy was kind of between feuds. It was before the, the, the Piper feud and it was a little bit after the Morocco feud, so I think they're just like letting him beat kind of like mid card guys to kind of like beef up his uh, record and also puff up his uh, status amongst the other wrestlers as far as uh, the fans go. So uh, another win for Jimmy doesn't hurt him, but uh, I'm kind of like you. I, I, by this point, I think um, Jimmy's almost overexposed at this point. Yeah, Jimmy, uh, I mean, this was more a showcase match for Jimmy Snuka. Hey, we've got Jimmy Snuka on the card for you. Here's something I'd like to talk about. Steve, whenever I went to go see Jimmy Snuka at a spot show, no one mailed it in quite like Jimmy. And even as someone who, you know, wasn't smart to the business or anything like that, I could just tell, you know, this guy, you know, he is really just not doing much tonight. And I was always disappointed when he didn't do the Superfly Splash, like, you know, the, a spot show up at the JFK Ice Arena in Manchester. And now I was thinking about this today. If he does the Superfly Splash every single time, which he did not do in this match, by the way, is it is it disappointing that he didn't do it? Or, like, when you come to the arena, are you like, okay, am I going to get to see the Superfly Splash tonight? Like, are you adding to it by not overdoing it? I think there's something to be said for that. I think it, it kind of makes it more like a sporting contest, the fact that you, you may see him win by a different way. And um, I know, uh, you know, from stories that have gone by over the years, I remember when he did return to WWF around 89, he was wrestling Honky Tonk Man. I know uh, they were going around the horn together. And I know at one point, Honky had some uh, rib rib injury that he was kind of mending. And he asked Jimmy before the match, you know, can you maybe beat me a different way tonight rather than jump off, off the top rope? And they came out with an ending where he would just give him like a devastating chop and pin him that way. And they didn't have to do the big you know, leap off the top rope. I, I kind of think that, you know, during different peaks of his career, I think especially later on, if he was uh, in a featured capacity, that leap almost seemed like he had to do it whether he wanted to or not. Uh, but, 
he's one of those wrestlers. I, I think he's kind of a polarizing wrestler. I mean, he's uh, got unbelievable gifts and talents as far as what he could do physically. But I almost feel like I'd rather see Jimmy Snooker against some job guy and see him do the splash and see him just, you know, beat this guy in three or four minutes to see him in a long competitive match. I think that might be more enjoyable just to see him beat some guy like in 180 seconds rather than having to watch a, you know, 20-minute match with that's supposedly a competitive match. No, this was another very slow, very plodding match. Um, and I, I kind of get it, too. I mean, Snooker couldn't do the Superfly Splash off the top rope every night at this point in his career. I mean, he's I think he's in his early 40s by now. He's been wrestling since the 60s. I mean, and just as a side note, Steve, I got to see... Jimmy Snooker versus the Honky Tonk Man in a cage match up at the JFK really? Arena in in Manchester, New Hampshire. And there were people there who thought they were going to see Snooker jump off the cage like he did in <laughs> 82 and 83, and I knew better. <laughs> you recall what the ending was? Uh, yes, yeah, Snooker walking out the out the the cage door. He did not climb the cage to to get out or anything like <laughs> well, that. It's, well, that's it's, good. It's in front of 2,000 people in Manchester, but I mean – you know, I, I say this probably too much, but I mean, even in 1989, like, wow, Jimmy Snuka is coming to little old Manchester, New Hampshire. Like the other stars, you know, whether of any entertainment, the big stars didn't do that. Finally, last match, we have Ivan Putski, Rocky Johnson, and Tony Atlas versus Sergeant Slaughter, Mr. Fuji, and Tiger Chung Lee. Steve, did you get to see this match? No, but I did read the the recap of it, so uh, and I I see, I almost kind of seem to remember watching it back when it occurred all those years ago, and it was yet another opportunity to kind of put over the crowd that Slaughter is is a fan favorite now, and he's somebody you should be rooting for, not hating, and uh, and it seems like he sent the fans home happy in this match. They did, and it was obvious from the start that, you know, there was problems between Slaughter Slaughter and his partners. I mean, as they're being – before they're being introduced, Sergeant Slaughter is on one end of the ring and Fuji and – Fuji and Tiger Chung Lee, I'm so used to saying Fuji and Saito, uh, (laughs) were on the other side. So you can tell right away there was going to be problems. The finish was kind of funny. Mr. Fuji has uh, – Slaughter has Ivan Putski in the ring, and he's putting the boots to him. He tags in Fuji, and Fuji just all of a sudden gets mad at Slaughter and says, I'm going to show you how to do it. And he kicks Putski, and then he kicks him again, and it's like, you know, Sergeant Slaughter needs to be taught to do a stomp at this point. <laughs> and then out of nowhere, Fuji slaps him in the mouth. So wow. Sergeant Slaughter pushes him, Putski pins Fuji, and then – uh, Fuji and Chung Lee leave the ring, and Slaughter has new friends in Putski, Johnson, and Atlas. Someone gives Slaughter an American flag from the crowd, and he's parading it around, and they're chanting USA, USA. Yeah, and, and watching this, and we saw that similar ending in the Spectrum show that we recently talked about, too. Um, Slaughter's popularity is just like a, it's like a skyrocket. It's just taking off and flying high. And, uh, and because Hogan's, uh, Hogan's liftoff is, um, is going strong and they're just taking baby steps with Hogan. I mean, they're not putting him in any kind of feud or anything super high profile. It's kind of interesting how the, the two of them, you'd almost compare the two because Slaughter is just soaring up there with his push, uh, 
Hogan is 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 the most over already. He's getting the hugest reaction, but but you can tell that there's a difference between the fans love Hulk Hogan. He's the champion, but the fans are really loving Slaughter because he's seen the light, and uh, you know the the once uh, terrible guy is now a reformed uh, former prisoner. Now he's a good guy, and it's like people are just eating it up. They sure are. I mean, when they introduce Slaughter, uh, you know. Before the match, I mean, he got as big a babyface pop as anyone on the show except Hulk Hogan, and he hadn't even turned yet. One thing I I wanted to mention, I was thinking about this. They basically did the same angle with different guys in Philadelphia uh, two days ago. Right. Now – New York and Philly are like two, two and a half hours away. You think there had to be some people who, you know, saw both of them and like, how do I put this? Um, you know, like, I'm, I'm like, okay, you're kind of exposing the business by doing the same angle in Philadelphia as you do in New York. They're not that far away. But then again, if you're enough of a fan to go to both of those shows, you already know something's up with wrestling. So what difference does it make? Yeah, and, and I mean, at least they were a couple of different guys. I mean, the Slaughter, uh, you know, I, I like the way you described it. I mean, he began the match a little bit hesitant of Fuji and Chung Lee already, and so I guess you can really um, kind of, um, you know, if you want to uh, you know, go along with what's going on, you can, you can suspend the disbelief and just uh, go with the flow. I'm with you on that. And that's that's a really good point, too. They did it with different guys. Um, all right. Right now, before we go on to our next segment, let's listen to some audio. We have Roddy Piper in Piper's Pit with Dr. D. David Schultz. Well, here we are again in Piper's Pit, the place that pulls no punches at all. I have finally found another man that had guts enough to come on and face possible harassment from Piper's Pit. His name is Dr. David Schultz. <laughs> it's as simple as this, Doctor. I have a question that has been brought to my attention that I know the answer to, but the public doesn't. And I know for a fact that you have asked for fights from anybody in the WWF. You have asked for fights with Rocky Johnson. You have asked for fights with Tony Atlas. And I myself saw Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas in, in the asking for those fights actually break down. All of a sudden, Rocky Johnson gets a sore rib. All of a sudden, Tony Atlas has got to go home and plow the fields. Tell us, what is it like to be such a fighter that intimidates other people so much that a man cannot even get a fight? You know, I wrestled at the AWA a long time, and I went there and I begged. I got on my knees and I begged somebody to come out and fight me. Nobody wanted to fight me. Nobody thought they could match me in the ring. Nobody wanted to sign their name. So I come to the WWF, baby, where the toughest in the world is wrestling right now. And it seems like I'm having the same problem that I'm having everywhere else. Nobody wants to face me man to man and prove who is the best. And I want to say one other thing. It's a pleasure for me to be sitting out here with one man that feels no fear from anybody whatsoever. And that's you, Ronnie Piper. I want to tell you, it's a pleasure to know somebody like you. Thank you. Just a few more truisms from the pit of Piper. Thank you. 
Okay, we got Dr. D. David Schultz talking about wrestling in the AWA. That was going to be gone real soon. No more mentions of anything outside the WWF uh, coming very soon, Steve. You know, listening to that, I, I don't think I can even remember... I mean, other than like the obvious stuff where like Baplin was wrestling Harley Race, I don't, I can't remember a, another time where uh, an NWA or AWA was mentioned, especially in this time frame. I think we may hear it maybe one other time coming up, but yeah, this this really surprised me. No, and especially being as Vince, you know, knows the wrestling war is coming. I mean, they were very, very rare mentions of anything outside the WWF period. Like you said, uh, when the Harley race thing happened in 1980, when they had the manager of the year contest, they were bringing up guys like Sir Oliver Humperdinck and I believe Gary Hart. Uh, But, you know, very rarely was anything outside the WWF mentioned. And and pretty soon it's going to be like, you know, we don't acknowledge anyone's past whatsoever. Right. Right. Yeah. It was, it was just amazing to hear him mention that, but, um, but that was kind of what was cool about that this era that we're talking about because it is taking you into kind of a new uh, unknown uh, territory of uh, wrestlers uh, being a little bit more real and you hear a little bit of the underpinnings of what's really going on behind the scenes. Yes, and and they you know the NWA of course they mentioned what's going on outside their territory because in a way they were all all kind of under one umbrella, but the WWF stayed out of that. Steve came up with a concept for this week's show. We'll wrap up with this, but it's it's a, I think it's going to be a pretty good segment. Steve, can you explain to the audience what we're doing? Absolutely. So uh, I just had an idea, and I, I mentioned it to John, and he seemed to like it. In this time frame of 84, 85, 86, especially the first two years, you really see everybody and their brother <laughs> in the WWF. If it's for a cup of coffee, like uh, Buzz Sawyer or the Freebirds, or maybe for for life, uh, like some of the other guys that would stay for for almost forever. So I, ha- I had an idea with John of who were who were five guys that you could name, and 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 uh, my from my point of view, I'm going to uh, name a couple of wrestlers, but also uh, more of an attraction and a manager. Who are some guys that you uh, would have liked to have seen in the WWF but never came? And when I say never came, I mean I'm talking about not only the 80s but beyond. So uh, I thought this would be kind of a fun little exercise. And uh, John, if you want to begin, uh, please begin. Okay, here's how I did this, Steve. I pictured myself, tried to put my my frame of mind back to January 1st, 1986, where okay. I'm driving home from Montreal. I'm looking forward to seeing the Rose Bowl and the Sugar Bowl, etc. And, okay, I'm, I'm driving by myself. And I'm, I'm asking myself as the cassette deck blares, who am I surprised is not with the WWF the most. And mm-hmm. I actually came up with 10 names because, it, you know, guys came on the list and then they get bumped off by someone else I thought of. Right. My number 10 was Terry Taylor, believe it or not. I mean, he's a good-looking guy, good wrestler, young guy. Okay. Number nine was Rick Rude, who mm-hmm. eventually came to the WWF, obviously. But even, re- even mm-hmm. reading about him in magazines, it seemed like he was 
custom made for the WWF. Oh, that's right. By by this time, I had seen him in world class, so I'd actually seen him wrestle. Uh, guys who uh-huh. were hard to leave off were number eight, Butch Reed, who came in in 86. Number mm-hmm. seven, Ted DiBiase, who came in in 1987. But I'm, I'm still wondering, like, you know, why is this guy still in Mid-South? <laughs> number six was really tough, Bruiser Brody, because, mm-hmm. I mean, he was obviously a big guy, and, you know, you can never have enough of those wrestling Hulk Hogan. I do believe that he would have been a WrestleMania match versus Hogan uh, type opponent if they had brought him in in 1985. So that's my my first one. Who did you have as your number five? Number five, I I went with more of an attraction. uh, uh, And just to give you the slow build, uh, uh, this person I'm thinking of had a special match in 1988 for WCW, uh, uh, for NWA. Uh, It was the match in Detroit where it was uh, um, the return of this man. I'll just spit it out. Uh, I would love to have seen, even if it was just for one match, the Sheik, Ed Farhad, in the WWF. Uh, I mean, he, he was everything that the WWF wasn't going to be, but um, he could have been used, uh, I mean, in somebody's corner at WrestleMania three, being that it was in Michigan. Uh, he could have been uh, in a, maybe in Hogan's corner in a match, maybe. I mean, they use guys like the Crusher and Mad Dog Rashawn and AWA cities. I think they could have used the Sheik in Detroit, much like uh, WCW used him in that in a gimmick match with Dusty and Kevin Sullivan and Dick Murdoch in '88. That's an interesting pick, and you're right. I mean, why not have the Sheik in a babyface's corner in you know at at some point in the '80s? It would have helped draw. I think that that's a that's a good one. Um, by the way, I wanted to, I want to point out like I. Like I have my guy, my number five guy is a what is he not doing in the WWF guy? I was not surprised that Ric Flair remained in the NWA. I was not surprised Dusty Rhodes, Magnum TA remained in the NWA because they had their own thing going there and they all seemed more like uh, NWA guys. I didn't wonder why Nick Bockwinkle wasn't coming to the WWF. It seemed like he was getting older and he was comfortable in the AWA. So I wanted to throw that in. My number five guy is Larry Zbysko. I mean, he had the big feud with uh, Bruno Sammartino in 1980. I mean, I, I'm to this day, I'm surprised they never brought him back. I, I was like waiting for him to return in 84 and 85. Well, I think that's an excellent pick. In fact, he's number two on my list. Um, so the, the things I had going for him, he was really a WWF product. I mean, he really started there. Um, I think that they could have given him like a snake pit segment or like a blackjacks barbecue, kind of a low rent or B show version of Piper's pit. And, um, you know how they eventually had the big feud with Piper against Adrian and Adonis, which led to the retirement match. Uh, having, uh, having a Zabisco who was a loud mouth too, host kind of a lower rent Piper's pit, eventually have a big blow off feud with Roddy Piper that might have been uh, an interesting feud. I don't know if it would have been the, the right one for WrestleMania three, but um, it, it, it may have been a very appealing uh, main event to, at some point along along the ride. And when the WWF made nice with Bruno Sammartino in 1984, and you know, as a result, they're br- bringing in David Sammartino. I was surprised that they didn't bring Larry Zbysko in as part of that act. I mean. 
In the Northeast, uh, David Sammartino with Bruno Sammartino in his corner versus Larry Zabisco, I don't think that would have main evented a major arena, but it would have been part of an interesting card. No, I I agree with that. And I think, uh, uh, you know, Larry did some really good work in the AWA in the the late uh, 80s, like 87 or so, and became the champion when everybody else was gone. Uh, he actually did some really decent stuff, uh, you know, wrestling uh, Stephen or William Regal in WCW in the early 90s. But um, it just seemed more of a natural fit. WWF was always more about talking and uh, personality rather than the wrestling itself. Uh, Zabisco would have given another kind of a more old school wrestler type in the mix, which they didn't really have a ton of, a more wrestling based, but a huge talker uh, on top of that. He he would have fit in much better in WWF than what he ended up doing in real life. I agree, and you know Zabisco, like I said, Zabisco over the years has claimed that he had a falling out with Vince McMahon Senior, and it seemed like Vince McMahon Senior was unaware that there was a falling out. I mean, he kept Larry around long after the Shea Stadium show, Uh, and plus by this point, not to be morbid, but Vince Senior was no longer with us. So I, once again, I will no never really understand why that didn't happen. Um, tell you what, you've given your number two, so I'll give my number four. I thought these guys were going to come to the WWF and win the tag team titles. They seemed so custom-made for what the WWF was doing, and it's not like they were on top of the card in Crockett or Watts anyway. The fabulous ones, Steve Kern and Stan Lane, they just seemed, you know, they would be a perfect fit for what the WWF was doing, and as far as I know, they never got a sniff. Yeah, I, I think um, I, I think that had they had the right manager, that would have been a good fit. I agree with that. Um, I'll tell you a funny quick anecdote that I just heard over the weekend. Uh, Don Morocco has been doing some shoot interviews, and he told this very funny story about uh, 1978. Apparently, there was one of those huge tours uh, where Vince Sr. sent a lot of his guys to New Japan, and apparently Blassie was on the tour, uh, and he would go over quite frequently since he was like a god over in Japan. Well, one of the young guys on this tour was Steve Kern. And Steve Kern uh, all of a sudden became the, the the head ribber on this trip, and uh, and and they for whatever reason they wanted to pull a rib on Blassie, who you know the guys normally wouldn't mess with him because he was considered you know you know he was a guy you wouldn't mess with because he was so popular among the office and what have you. Well, anyhow, according to Morocco, Kern pulled this really nasty rib on him, like got like. Uh, either dog manure or horse manure, put this this uh, dog feces on like the uh, doorknob of Blassie's room, and when Blassie went to grab it, he realized what he was grabbing, and and Blassie went you know ballistic, and uh, you know he's a really neat neat guy, and you know he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't want to you know have germs on him, and apparently he went ballistic and uh years later when somebody would bring up Steve Kern's name apparently Blassie would go apeshit and just say uh he wanted to have nothing to do with him and i kind of want to almost think like maybe when if he was trying to get in WWF that because the office had kind of a bad attitude or bad uh, impression of him they may have kept him out 
wow, I had never heard that story before. <laughs> My immediate reaction is not like Blassie never ribbed anybody. <laughs> um, but yeah, if he was, if he held that kind of a grudge against Steve Kern <laughs> and Blassie wasn't gone until 1986, hey, mystery solved. Yeah, he was, he was really, uh, you know, Blassie was very tight with Vince Jr. I guess after, uh, you know, um, after Jer- Jerry Graham, Blassie was really Vince's probably second favorite. And uh, so th- those two were thick as thieves. So maybe that's why Kern uh, didn't come in. But he did eventually come in as Skinner years later. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, oh, almost a decade later. So Steve was finally forgiven. All right, Steve, who's your number four? All right, my number four again. I'm going to go a little bit off off path, like I did with the Sheik. Uh, I'm going to go, um, especially when you think about 1984. Is is we're starting this year and we're talking about it every week. We've talked about Albano and Blassie still playing major roles. We lost the Iron, we lost the uh, Grand Wizard a few months prior, and the WWF always had a pattern of having at least three managers. I know Bobby Heenan in his shoot interviews said that the reason he was never allowed to come in is because they had the three and they couldn't really afford to have four. But as we're seeing now, you're having some more minor managers like, a, like say, a Johnny V or a Mr. Fuji are eventually going to get roles. But I'm thinking it would have been interesting in 1984 at some point if Gary Hart came in. And, and I'm saying this is interesting because in real life, he was involved with world-class, booking world-class. He was also involved with the Georgia promotion and also the Mid-Atlantic promotion. So I can see why, in reality, it, it, there was no room to have this happen. But he was a unique personality. Uh, maybe he was over the hill as a manager, but he would have been a different type of a manager for the WWF. And uh, it would have been interesting to see him in this time frame as a manager. Gary Hart, to me, was not a WWF fit, but then again, a lot of guys weren't WWF fits, and the WWF just brought them in and changed them. I mean, who could have imagined in 1988 that the WWF would bring in the sheep herders, okay? But they just repackaged them. Right, yeah, and same with Percy Pringle. He became the uh, Paul Bearer, a different role. But yeah, Gary Hart, I think, would have been more of an articulate type of a manager. And uh, I know years later, there was rumor that he would have been like the manager for Doink uh, at some point or another foreign wrestler that would come in to just manage one performer in the early 90s. That never came to be. But I think here in the early 80s before, uh, I mean, I think you and I both agree he was pretty much past his prime by the 89 run in, in WCW. Um, I think Gary Hart might have been an interesting fit, even if it was just for a few months in 1984. Gary Hart was not well liked by everyone. Um, and, you know, not no one is, but Gary Hart. Uh, you know, sometimes he would bring some baggage to the table, uh, like he did with Muda, where he was managing Muda in real life and on screen, and that led to some problems, but. Who knows? I mean, you know, the, the, the WWF, they want, if they wanted to make something work, they made it work. Uh, my number three has an asterisk next to it. Or I, I need to do some splaining. 
January 1st, 1986, I had not yet learned that Stan Hansen had won the AWA title. Otherwise, you know, obviously he's got something else really good to do. Um, but Stan Hansen was with the AWA. Uh, I know he was still wrestling in Japan, but at the time I did not realize how lucrative Japan tours were for both him and Bruiser Brody. So to me, he was kind of conspicuous by his absence. He had been in the WWF before. You know, a superstar, a huge name, the guy who broke Bruno San Martino's neck, and he never showed up, and I, I never understood why. At at that time, I couldn't understand why. Well, I guess we're on the same wavelength here. I, he's my number one pick. Um, he did have a match in 1991 at the big show in Japan with Hulk Hogan, so they ha- they ended up having a match, but he never came in for a run. But I think a Hogan-Hanson program... Uh, uh, they were actually roommates in New Jersey in 1981 when they were both in WWF. So that'd be kind of interesting to see them uh, pair up against each other in a feud. Uh, uh, Stan Hans against Randy Savage, that's got another huge uh, possibilities on it. Uh, or even if he, if Hansen came in earlier against Orndorff. I mean, these would all be wonderful feuds to see. Uh, it wasn't meant to be, but uh, I think it would have been really interesting to see him come back to WWF. What would have really been interesting is if they ever eventually turned him babyface, considering his past history with Bruno Sammartino. I mean, people hated Stan Hansen in 1976 for the, the heinous act he committed. And by the way, when right after Bruno passed away, WWE Network put something on where you know they they finally showed the the move where Stan Stan Hansen you know broke Bruno's back uh, neck cracking his vertebrae legit, and oh my god, it's it, he just like lawn darted Bruno San Martino like directly right into the the canvas. It was it was like you know is Stan Hansen trying to kill Bruno? It was brutal. Yeah, it's it's amazing, it's amazing that uh, Bruno. Uh, you can tell he's very groggy after that. Uh, he he has the wherewithal to allow Hanson to throw him into the ropes for the lariat, which is was done almost in slow motion. But yeah, it's interesting. And and again, as we're talking, kind of like fantasy booking here. Uh, I would love this uh, this this fantasy scenario just kind of crept into my mind. Had he come into the WWF, and let's say. They had done this angle where uh, Bruno San Martino, maybe uh, let's say let's say that they're wrestling on TV and Stan Hansen against David San Martino, and, uh, and maybe David gets injured. Bruno comes in to, to help uh, David, and uh, they, maybe uh, Hansen wilds Bruno. They're both down on the mat. Out of out of the, the back, somebody runs in and comes after uh, Hanson, and it's Larry Zabisco. So Larry Zabisco turns into a good guy, saving Bruno. Now that would have been an interesting scenario, but maybe there was a good reason that never happened. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I never understood like you know why Larry came back, and then you know later on you hear stories that Vince Senior wasn't happy with him. Well, since you've given your number one, I guess it's my turn. January 1st, 1986, I am dying to know why the Road Warriors still have not come to the WWF. They are in the AWA. Uh, They're doing some stuff in Georgia. I didn't know they were doing some stuff in Japan. But, I mean, definitely conspicuous by their absence. Yes, they eventually went in 1990. But, I mean, how did the WWF, like, not roll out the royal, the, the red carpet for these guys? They were perfect for the WWF. You, you know, uh, part of me, 
part of me thinks that the reason that they weren't like um, coming in sooner, I, and I know Vince wanted him to come in sooner, but I, again, I'm trying to put a spin on it. I'm trying to figure out why. To me, like their their interviews were were like a a, a drawback. I know people are gonna hate me for this, but uh, like you know, Animal would would speak at the top of his lungs and he shouted shout out his interviews, and then Hawk would do his interviews and shout it out. They were like really like um, they weren't as safe family friendly as most of the WWF guys, and I kind of think that maybe that's why they didn't come in immediately and get a push. So Vince ends up like creating his homogenized version of them with demolition, which which ended up being better workers than the Road Warriors. You know, it's kind of humorous. And then the powers of pain eventually come in, and, and they're you know kind of like a, another wonky version of the Road Warriors. And eventually, the Road Warriors come in as a legion of doom. So everything comes full circle. But uh, but yeah, I, I think that's a great pick on your part. It, it definitely. Uh, I'm sure many fans have had that on the top of their list. How come they're not in with Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper? Oh, yeah. I Before every WrestleMania for like four years, uh, a very small local A&M station would have me come over. And the number one question, of course, was, you know, is wrestling fake? Because, they, Steve, people needed 25-year-old me to tell them whether or not wrestling <laughs> was fake. <laughs> But the number two question is, you know, when is Flair, Ric Flair going to the WWF? When is Sting going to the WWF? When are the Road Warriors going to the WWF? And, you know, finally the day came and I had an answer. I'm like, probably this summer, 1990. And then that actually happened. So which one are we, are, we're missing your number two? Uh, actually, my number three got missing. And let me tell you who this is. Uh, this is going to uh, blow your mind as well. Uh, again, not a guy who's going to be there like to, to rock the promotion and change things, but more like a guy who I think he really deserved a chance in the WWF and would have really played a nice little role. Not a big role, but a little role and would have been just a, a, another star on their great roster of talent, Chavo Guerrero. Now, with Chavo Sr., Chavo Classic, as he calls himself before he passed away, uh, he actually did come to the WWF for a very brief run in the summer of 87. He wrestled house shows for about four to six weeks in the summer of 87, you know, getting wins over people like Jose Estrada. But he never really made it to TV. He didn't get any push. He didn't get to TV. And before you know it, he was on to AWA or another another promotion. But I think in, in the, say, 84, 85, He's the kind of guy I could see him teaming up with Steamboat on TV periodically, uh, just in the mix, not getting a huge push, but uh, a guy with great talent, the, the great look, great ability, and just see see what they do with him. I thought of not Chavo Guerrero, but Chavo and Hector Guerrero as a tag team. I had seen them uh, on Mid-South Wrestling during that six-week run when they were on WTBS. I was really impressed. It, it In a way, it's really sad that the Guerreros didn't have that major run in the WWF or even better had that major run in the NWA because, I mean, can you imagine Hector and Chavo wrestling the Midnight Express or the Rock and Roll Express and the Guerreros were a team that you could easily put in as either heels or baby faces. They were very turnable. Oh, de- definitely. They had a just a great, great luck to them, great wrestling and, uh, they, they would have fit in really with any promotion you could think of. The problem with the WWF is that they are smaller. 
Uh, they're not Rock and Roll Express level small, but they're smaller than your average WWF wrestler. But you know, to me, at the end of the day, who cares? They were an excellent in-ring team. They had you know the great persona, like when Chavo turned heel in Florida in 1984. He had like the bandoleros and the 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 big uh, what is it the, the, the why can't I think that the hat that is associated with Mexico? Right, right. I know what you're talking about. But, okay, yeah, neither I, one of us can think of it. But no, yeah, I, he, he found a sombrero. That? Sombrero. That's the word okay. I'm looking for. Okay. And it was a, it was a great look, and I will always be disappointed that they never got the run that I felt that they should have in a major promotion. I mean, Chava was okay in Bill Watts's UWF in nineteen. He, he was really good actually in in Bill Watts's UWF. But I, I just love the Guerreros as a tag team. All right, we have nothing left, but not my number one. And and Steve was not on your list. My number one uh, by, by far. On January 1st, 1986, would have been Nikita Koloff, preferably with Ivan Koloff coming in as his mentor slash manager slash tag team partner. The WWF was not about wrestling. It was about, you know, showmanship and presentation and look. And Nikita Koloff had the look. He looked like the baddest dude on the planet. He was thick and muscled. And the WWF was coming, I mean, we were coming off, you know, we talked about this earlier, uh, it was an era of patriotism, mm-hmm. Rocky Four had just been in theaters, it was Rocky against the, the crazy bad Russian, I mean, I'm surprised Vince McMahon didn't do whatever he needed to do to make that happen at WrestleMania 2. You, you know, uh, I think that's a great call on your part, to John. Uh, when we did this little uh, concept together, I, I thought about picking him, but I, again, I wanted to go more for like what I would like. I mean, I know business wise, I think you're you're miles ahead of me. I think you know it's it's the perfect choice. I think I think Hogan beating the the Russian nemesis of uh, uh, Koloff at WrestleMania two would probably have been. Probably sold more tickets than him beating Bundy. I really believe that. But just for from what I like and the people I mentioned, like the Gary Hearts and the Sheik and the Chavo, I guess I'm looking more for just skilled uh, wrestlers. I know with uh, Koloff, I've got a gazillion clotheslines and, and lots of great uh, uh, posing and stuff. Uh, but I just I just didn't want to see it for my own purposes, my selfish purposes. Well, I, I went with what I, I would have wanted to see on that date. And I, you know, by this point, uh, once again, January 1st, 1986, I had not been smartened up at all by the newsletters. I All I knew was what I saw on TV and, and what I read in the magazines. And I, I would have gone crazy for that. I would have loved it. It, it, would have, it would have just printed money. It would have printed money. Absolutely, and they they could have done more than just WrestleMania two. They could have you know toured with that match in the summer, and I think they they could have maybe even you know gone to stadiums with it. Steve, I really liked this concept, and thank you for coming up with it. Well, it was fun. We'll we'll do it again sometime. <laughs> okay.
I hope you liked it, and we are back for one more February 1984 next week. It's going to be a little bit different than this one. It's not as results-oriented. Uh, actually, it's not results-oriented at all. And the week after that, we have something really special. It's not just WWF. So, well, hopefully, if everything falls in line, uh, I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this forum. Uh, I appreciate it, Brian. Uh, almost, we're almost up to 300 episodes. I can't believe it. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for for all the great and hard work he does every week producing this podcast and just being a really good, flexible guy. And, of course, I want to thank all of you for listening. Until next week, this has been Stick to Wrestling. I'm John McAdam. We will talk to you soon. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. That's what happens when I don't have notes in front of me. This concludes our podcast day.